Nectar respecta. Connecta pecta introspecta deflecta becta sol trifecta dialecta inspecta secta English. Nesta respecta dialecta correcta operecta genuflecta pecta nectar. Aspecta dialecta secta interlecta nectar dialecta respecta detecta effecta pecta clusterecta aplecta incorrecta. Attention. The following program will be broadcast in the sole three idiom known as Ingulash, in honor of the source of the fine products being featured. Translation to Interlac or your respective planetary language will occur automatically via your exclusive ClusterCast application. Greetings and welcome to a special interstellar transmission of the Cluster Galactic Shopping Network. Broadcasting to you live on Digitape from the Cluster ship currently orbiting Alpha Centauri, it is I, Elron, that robot everyone loves to love, and I am here to ask you the following. Has this ever happened to you? You are taking a lengthy interstellar journey from Beetlejuice to the Vega system and the hypersleep chamber has gone offline. Oh no! What can you do? You had tried lengthy audio literature relay discs to help pass the time, but the droning narrative monotones only make you fall asleep at the controls, and then your starship crashes into a random asteroid. Oh no again! But now there is a solution. Podcasts. That's right. Quirky, informative, entertaining, educational podcasts. And not just any podcast, no siree Bob. I am talking about pop culture, fandom-related podcasts that come directly from the planet Soul 3, otherwise known by its Earthen inhabitants as... Earth. That's right, through an exclusive arrangement with the Fire and Water Podcast Network of Earth, we, the Cluster, can offer to you, for a limited time... Exclusive access to exclusive Fire and Water Podcast Network Network Podcast content. Over the next four chronocycles, you will find out just how this exclusive content can be exclusively yours, as well as preview exclusive previews of this exclusive content on... The Cluster and Fire and Water presents the FW Summer Sampler Super Spectacular! And all of this has been made possible by our megalomaniacal founder, Lord Manga Khan! My lord, do you not want to say a few words? Of course, Elrond! But first I want to be sure you fully capture this impressive pose I'm striking. My lord, this is an audio medium. So? <sighs> My apologies, sir. I must admit I was not able to capture your impressive pose fully the last time. It was just so impressive. Of course it was. Please allow me a few nanos. Okie doke. Please strike the impressive pose again, sir. Perfect. Most impressive, sir. Most impressive indeed. Manga Khan, you have definitely outdone yourself. Earth-based programming is the hottest thing in the galaxy since sliced uranium. And now, with the pirated Fire and Water Network podcast at our disposal, the Cluster can finally give the galactic citizens what they want. 
so the galactic citizens can give the cluster what I want. Huge piles of gold-pressed bit latinum. The inevitable success of this venture can only propel me onward to my ultimate goal of nothing less than total ownership of the galaxy. Nay, the entire universe. The Fire and Water Podcast Network Network Podcast will serve as the foundation upon which my future empire will be built. A firm, yet affable dictatorship that shall... Hello, Manga. You're shouting again. And you had also blurted out our secret plans to profit immensely by charging the intergalactic rubes exorbitant prices for the Earthers' free entertainment programming without those Earthers even knowing. Ah, sorry about that. You will nort all of that out of the feed, I trust. Already noted, my lord. Excellent. Why don't you introduce the first podcast sample for the anxious intergalactic listeners at home? Right away, sir. First up is a sampling of item 97211, the podcast program that started the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Aquaman and Firestorm, the Fire and Water Podcast. Hosted by the ubiquitous Rob Kelly, longtime fan of Aquaman and the founder of the fanatical data repository known as the Aquaman Shrine. And co-hosted by the pervasive, irredeemable Shag, a fervent Firestorm fan. The Fire and Water Podcast usually focuses on two of Earth's well-known hypernormal defenders, Aquaman, King of the Seven Seas, and Firestorm, the Nuclear Man. I also have it on good authority that this podcast had raised the popularity of hypernormal Aquaman to such an extent that he would soon be the star of his own cinematic feature. And in this exclusive segment, these ardent, if not zealous, hosts We'll discuss the latest intelligence reported on this upcoming film. And Firestorm, the Fire and Water Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shang. Along with me, as always, is my co-host, Whitman's own Rob Kelly. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing well because we're here to talk about the Aquaman movie. Oh my gosh, that's a, that's a <laughs> sentence. That is actually a sentence that you can that's say a now. Sentence, sentence we get to say when we started the Fire and Water Podcast. Way of oh my god, seven, seven, seven <laughs> years ago. Uh, that would have been insane. And now, as we've talked about in previous episodes, there's a Firestorm TV show, which is amazing. But there's an Aquaman movie, and the ramp up the, to the marketing has begun. And specifically, this big, pun intended, splashy article in Entertainment <laughs> Weekly showing photos of the movie. The first photos we're getting to see of Aquaman the movie. The, but he, he has the cover. Oh, my gosh. Multiple variant covers of Entertainment Weekly was given to Aquaman. I, 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 if I'm not careful, I'm just going to be incredulous every statement I make in this episode, because, in this mini-sampler, because I'm just so amazed that he's getting so much you know, attention in the mainstream pop culture. It's amazing. Yeah, it really is. And, I mean, the photos are really cool. We get to see Jason Momoa, of course, in various different outfits. Amber Heard, who looks like a spot-on Mira, 
Uh, I mean, the, the, as everybody knows, Jason Momoa doesn't look like the Aquaman that we see in the comics, although he's got a beard now, so they're getting closer. But, but Amber Heard as Mira looks exactly like the way uh, Ivan Reese and Joe Prado drew her. I mean, just right out of the comics. No, I don't want to. I don't want to argue with yes. you. Okay, maybe I do. No, I, 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 how, how, this is meant to be a sample of our show. You arguing <laughs> with me would be a perfect representation of the show. Let's be authentic. Yeah, I, I would disagree. I would say he does look a lot like the pad Aquaman, the Peter David Aquaman. You know, the the grizzled, bedraggled, as one person once called him, uh, Aquaman. I think he sort of. You know, there's the tats; those are new, but he looks a lot like that version. Well, he's not a brunette. Okay, just keep going. Amber Heard, oh, oh, I'm sorry. absolutely. That's, that's, just smoking. Yeah, the, the, now I got one critique. Definitely a sample of the show that when I point out Shag is wrong, he just moves on to the next point. That yeah. is absolutely par for the course of the fire. One small fight. critique about Amber Heard: her red hair is like so red, it's like 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 a high C or or fruit punch kind of red almost. You know, like the Kool Aid Man's gonna come bursting <laughs> through the oh, yeah. hair. Um, I'm going deep, right? But other than that, I mean. She, the cot. I'm sorry, I said it already once, but she's smoking crazy hot. So uh, she looks great. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, we get to see Patrick Wilson as Ocean Master, uh, presumably. Uh, there is one photo of him where it looks like he's cradling a helmet. Oh, my God. So I have to wonder, are we going to get to see him in his helmet? I think it looks like he has a man bun, which <laughs> makes him a villain in my book. So, nope. I mean, I'm okay with, uh, you know. I don't think it's a man. Uh, I don't think it's a man bun. If you look close enough at that, I think his hair is swooped back to be like a fin. I kid okay, you not. He's got all right, he's got a man fin then. Okay. Uh, we get uh, we we see Black Manta. That's that is my one fear. I will say is the idea that Black Manta and Ocean Master are in this movie. Like you know, these movies at times they overload the villains. Now maybe the idea is Black Manta is kind of like they layer him in. You know, for for Aquaman too. Like okay, he's in it. We see him a little, but he's not the. He's clearly not the main villain. It's going to be Ocean Master as the villain. But I am a little hesitant that like. Aquaman basically has two villains. I was going to say, they're kind of shooting their wad with the first movie. And and they're kind of, they're kind of going through both of them in the first film. But I mean, given the track record of these DC movies, they might not guarantee there's going to be a second one. So I could see why they want to get all that accomplished. I mean, I have to say, James Wan certainly seems like he has a different approach. I like the visuals, the look of it. It looks interesting. It has, there's one photo of Nicole Kidman as his mother, Atlanta, that has a kind of like storybook kind of look to it, which I liked. Uh, Willem Dafoe is Volko, which is like, again, that's a sense I get to say. Uh, so following six months are going to be an increased ramp up of Aquaman the movie because we're going to have this cover. And then I think in a couple of weeks, by the time everybody hears this, the trailer will be out. The first trailer at it's, the San Diego uh, Comic-Con. Yeah, Comic-Con's when they're showing it. Yep, yep. Right, at Comic-Con. And then we'll get like a full trailer and then there'll be the two. And then the movie in December. I love It's too perfect. For those of you who know my predilections about certain things, that the Aquaman movie will be squaring off against the Transformers movie. That is just, <laughs> <laughs> just too perfect. Was it against Bumblebee or something? It's up against Bumblebee. It comes out oh the same weekend. Gosh. Oh my gosh. I have nothing against Haley Joe Steinfeld, and I have nothing against, really, like a Transformer movie not directed by Michael Bay. I'm like, okay, that's fine, but it's just, you couldn't design it more perfectly for me to pick sides. Yeah, <laughs> the okay. Transformers square off. Fair enough. Fair enough. You know, you're talking about the whole pop culture thing. By the way, I do want to point out the cover here. Uh, they have a great tagline here. It says, Inside the ambitious attempt to bring a former pop culture punchline 
to the big screen. That's great. I mean, that perfectly sums up what James Wan's trying to do here. And yeah, I'm glad they get into that. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, I, I have lots and lots and lots of notes. So I, I want to talk about some more about the art. There's an amazing shot here. It's like a matte painting almost uh, showing uh, these giant statues, Atlantean kings. And yes. they're enormous. And there's all these people around it. And uh, they, they, apparently they call that the Council of Kings. And Orm decides to have a meeting there. And you get to see these Zebel, like, you know, where Maris from the Zebel people are riding giant seahorses, but they're called sea dragons. And James James Wan specifically said that's a nod to the old Aquaman riding a seahorse. You get the Atlanteans riding armored sharks. Orm is riding this massive alligator creature. It's so freaking cool. And all of this is kind of ties into the whole Seven Kingdoms thing, the storyline that Jeff Johns wanted to explore in that, you know, whatever it was going to be, the, the, there was going to be some sequel about uh, Seven Kingdoms that had to do with Justice League, and that never happened. And so they're actually rolling that into the movie, that's, that, that concept, which I think is great. No. Yeah, um, there was a uh, there was a data point in the article that I really liked, and it's something that I have used many many times. I've been talking about Aquaman. Is they the the Entertainment Weekly writer actually gets into the mentions that Aquaman is one of like the only five continually published superheroes in the last eighty years. They actually mm-hmm. mention that. I can't believe I saw that little nerdlinger detail in an article <laughs> in Entertainment Weekly. Like that was just startling to me that they made the effort to to say that. Well, the writer also was shocked that the, the scenes they showed him, uh, he liked them. He was really impressed with the scenes. In fact, Jason Momoa asked him, sort of like half-jokingly, he's like, were you a little bit surprised? And the writer was like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and apparently, okay, other, more data stuff that I didn't know. Momoa, he read for Batman, dude. I didn't yes, know that. Yes, I saw that, yeah. He read for Batman in VBS, and Snyder's like, you know, and even Momoa's like, this is a joke. I'm not going to be Batman. But Snyder's like, yep. hey, I got an idea. Come here. How about this instead? And like Momoa's like, you know, Aquaman, forget it, man. No way. And this is the shocking thing. James Wan was already in negotiations to direct Aquaman when he gets told that they've just cast Jason Momoa. And he's like, what the what? You know, he's like mm-hmm. totally thrown for a loop. He slept on it and decided, oh my gosh, this is a brilliant move. You know, and it sort of fits kind of interesting what they reveal about Momoa in this article that I didn't know because Momoa has kind of a connection to Arthur. You know, he's he, he's he's already a man of two worlds who doesn't fit in. I mean, that's Aquaman, right? A man of two worlds and doesn't fit into either one. And Momoa, he's multiracial. He's half Hawaiian. First, he lived in Hawaii. Then he lived in Iowa. And he didn't fit in in either world. He was bullied as a kid. And he was raised by a single mother with two jaw. I know the idea of him being bullied is crazy. But um, he was raised by a single mother with who's working two jobs. So. There's a lot of parallels between what Momoa went through as a kid and what Aquaman kind of dealt with. And that's, it, it, it's sort of beautiful the way it fits together. I really like that. I'm picturing Jason Momoa going like back to Iowa and like grabbing one of the guys that beat him up and throwing him into the pinball machine like in <laughs> Superman 2. Right. I knew where you're going with that. <laughs> um, Momoa, let's see, other stuff. Momoa was worried that Aquaman came out too grumpy in Justice League. Yes. Interesting. And he really didn't like the whole talks to fish line. He, he wished they didn't keep that in the movie. I'm sure Rob didn't want it in the movie either. It didn't bother me that much, but I, I didn't like that it was in the trailer. Like, I wish they had yeah. kind of, like, just, you know, played it a little quieter than that. But, you know, that's what, that's how that works with these trailers. You know, they try and look for the stuff that people know. And, and right. I, I, th- I, you know, I had mixed feelings about that movie, but I thought Aquaman and Wonder Woman by far came off the best. And, uh, you know, like, okay, like, show me more. Why not? Why not yeah. do it? This yeah. is, and and I, I appreciate any film director who is trying to do different things. James Wan has directed different genres, and he's trying to do something very different here. And I like that. I, it's, it's, it's cool. I like that you have these modern directors that are able to hop from genre to genre. And he clearly seems to have some sort of vision for this thing. And so, okay, good, you do it, man. I mean, I have tweeted stuff out. 
related to Aquaman that occasionally he has liked and stuff like that. And it's always like filmation related. So he's obviously got a sense of humor about it. Oh, cool. You know, it's not like, you know, so I'm like, okay, cool. It's, it'll be interesting to see what marketing they do in the next five months outside of the trailer to get people on board, you know, with this movie. Because again, Aquaman is still not a marquee license the way Wonder Woman is and Superman or Batman. So they've, they've got a job ahead of them, but I think, I, mean, I, think, I, mean, I, think I think they'll go pretty light on the toys. Well, because think, I mean, think about how many were left on the shelves from BBS, from Justice League, from Wonder Woman. Yeah, that's true. Now, there's going to be but, an Aquaman line of action figures. That's amazing. But before you stray too far, I do want to talk about the James Wan as director. There's one thing he's doing differently than they did in Justice League, uh, where with Amber Heard, her character Mara, she in, in Justice League she had to create this giant bubble of air so that they could have a conversation. And he said, because people have been bugging him, asking him how they're going to deal with people talking underwater. And he's like, look, you guys are overthinking it. They're, we're not going to be creating air bubbles for them to talk underwater. They're just going to talk underwater. Yep. Don't over, don't yep. overthink it, which I thought was great. That's a great directorial yep. cho- choice. Just, just do it. So yeah. Now, so let's not waste any more time on this. They just talk underwater. Let's move yep. on. Now they did reveal some of the story. Uh, it, it, there's a lot of the classic Aquaman in here. You know, we talked about he's a, he's a man of two worlds. The mother is the queen of Atlantis. His father is human. Now one that changes, it, it, Orm will be his half brother, but from the mother. So he's from Atlantis, not the surface world. So you know, whereas your classic Aquaman version, it was Tom Curry's son, right? Uh, yes. In this version, it's uh, Atlantis' son. So he's king of Atlantis, and he apparently wants to declare war on the surface world. He's a bit of an eco-warrior kind of guy. And then Black Mana, all we really know, like you said, we don't know how much he's going to use, but we know he's a mercenary, sort of a modern-day pirate, and he's got some kind of grudge against Curry, uh, Arthur Curry, that is. I wouldn't be surprised if they sort of lean on the story that Jeff Johns put in there about their fathers. You know, that I won't spoil it here for you folks, but go back and read the Jeff Johns run of Aquaman. You can read anything by Jeff Johns, and it's about fathers, pretty much. That's true. That's true. So, you know, just last kind of thoughts. You know, the big things James Wan says is that, you know, the biggest thing about this movie is the wild, fantastical underwater world. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be like sort of like Guardians of the Galaxy explored space for Marvel. It, this is exploring the unknown depths of the ocean for for, uh, for, D, for DC, which sounds really cool. Apparently, it's been, oh, there's been a lot of tough filming it because, you know, they're, they're doing wire work constantly to make it look like they're swimming. Uh, they're soaking wet, you know, in these cold sound stages. They're soaking wet all the time. Uh, apparently, Amber Heard said it, it, uh, the wire works great because it's a, a fantastic core workout for her, apparently. <laughs> so, MMO has apparently been great. You know, he he's, sounds like he's a real leading man. He's got a ton of charisma. He's funny. Everyone seems to really like him. He's going to be shirtless most of the time, so that, you know, that gives some cheesecake for folks, and I can't wait for December 21st. Technically, that's beefcake, but okay. Oh, uh, right, yeah. You're right, you're right, you're right. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, I'm super excited about it. And, and for anyone listening to this that has not heard our main show, Fire and Water podcast, we do talk about Firestorm occasionally. <laughs> That's true. And I think when we get to our Who's Who sampler, you're going to hear a lot more Firestorm talk than you're going to hear Aquaman talk. So it'll be a nice trade-off. All right, folks, I think that's going to do it. Uh, we're going to end our sample here. Enjoy the rest of the show. And with that, fan the flame. And ride the wave. That was the Aquaman and Firestorm, though not that much Firestorm, uh, also known as the Fire and Water Podcast, item 97211. Available to you live through Clustercast for the low, low price of $99.99.99. Clustercast intergalactronic charges may apply. But the cluster is not stopping with just a single podcast, no cerebobulation. We have an entire network of shows for your vestibular cochlear pleasure. In fact, 
for those of you in the galaxy who revel in the cerebral hypoactivation triggered by frightening stimuli, we have the perfect entertainment for you. A podcast so frightening that it chills the very antifreeze in my micromotors. In Midnight, the podcasting hour, item number 12000, Ryan Daly shines a dim spotlight on the scary supernatural hypernormals of Earth, such as Dead Man, the Spectre, and the Phantom Stranger. Plus, the eerie voice of spooky storyteller PJ Frightful recites terrifying tales from the numerous horror anthology series published by the Earth and DC Comics. Here is but one oil-curling example. Hello, listeners. It's PJ Frightful here with a spooky, sampler-sized tale of terror just to remind you that even in the summer, it's midnight, the podcasting hour. Charlie Ford was part of a construction crew putting up a new high-rise on the West Coast. One fateful afternoon, Charlie's foreman, Lou Bolton, confronted him alone on one of the building's higher floors. Lou had caught Charlie stealing from the company's safe the night before. He promised not to turn Charlie in as long as the younger man returned the money that morning. But Charlie lost the money betting on horse races. He begged Lou to give him more time, just one more day. But another day would be too late. The company and the bank would notice the theft. Lou Bolton told Charlie he didn't have a choice. He had to turn him in. And with that, he sealed both of their fates. In panic, Charlie Ford grabbed his power drill. And when Lou looked away, Charlie drove it straight into his foreman's back. Lou's death wail drowned out the whirring of the drill. When the dread deed was done, Charlie lifted Lou's body and carried it across the beams on the skeletal building structure. Inspiration struck him, and Charlie dropped Lou's body over the side where it plunged into the back of a cement mixer. The next day, when the crew poured the concrete, Lou's body would be buried forever. Or so Charlie thought. When the next day came, he was summoned to the office. The company managers had, indeed, noticed the missing money. When Lou didn't show up for work, they assumed he ran off with the cash. And so, the murderous Charlie Ford was promoted to foreman, taking over the job of the man he'd killed hours earlier. Later that day, Charlie returned to the exact spot of his crime, high up in the unfinished building. As the crew below began pouring the cement, Charlie watched in horror as the spectral image of Lou Bolton rose from the fresh cement. Charlie screamed as the ghost of his victim flew straight up at him. None of the other men on the crew could see any ghost. All they saw was Charlie, pointing and screaming and backing away, backing away until his foot stepped off the beam, 
and Charlie fell off the building. When the crew rushed to see his dead and broken body, they were shocked by what his fatal fall had exposed. Mixed in with the concrete was Lou Bolton's corpse. Police would later decipher the bizarre events that led to both men's deaths. That Charlie Ford thought he found the perfect place to cover up his crime. But what could he do about the Unburied Phantom? Unburied Phantom is written by George Cashton with art by Vic Catton Jr. It originally appeared in Ghosts issue 81, October 1979. Hope you enjoyed that little tale, folks. You can hear more sinister stories from DC's horror comics, brought to you by me, along with Ryan Daly and other gruesome guest hosts. All you have to do is wait for the bell to toll. Then it's midnight, the podcasting hour. Midnight, the podcasting hour, can also be available on your Clustercast application for the ghastly low expense of only $99.99.99. Clustercast intergalactronic charges not included, of course. But enough about that. As you all know, Earth has been all the rage throughout the galaxy for several cycles now, ever since the Lone Planet had fended off an attack by the combined might of some of the most powerful species of the known universe. The Kuns, the Thanagarians, the Durlins, the Gildishpan, the Daxamites, the Warlords of Oka'ara, the Scions, the Citadel, despite being aligned to the otherwise foolproof agenda of the Insidious Dominators. But do you know the full story of how this planet of backwater upstarts managed to overcome what should have been such impossible odds? You of course have heard the Dominator's version of events, ad nauseum, but exclusively through the cluster, you can subscribe to the ongoing First Strike The Invasion podcast, item 10188, for a detailed play-by-play account from the Earthen, and the notorious Earthen Soup Bar Heroes' perspective. Here is an auditory sampling of what you can expect. Stop and listen! Stop and listen to me! Listen! Listen! Listen to me! They're not human! Everyone! They're here already! Journey! Hi, this is Siskoid. And I'm Bass. Normally, we're the, the hosts of First Strike, the Invasion podcast, Bass. I know. We just got merch out. And the show's almost over. I know. Only like, what, five, four episodes? Four episodes by the time you hear this. So people have been asking us, what's next? What do we do next? Ah, oh man, so many options. Yeah, we could part ways and you could do some podcasting with, I'm sure Rob Kelly has room. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Who's Rob Kelly? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. What do we do next? I think First Strike should be followed by another big crossover event. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's our thing. That's what we do. That's what we do. I'm thinking uh, something from the 90s, maybe? Uh, I don't know. Uh, Bloodlines? Uh, well, 
let's leave that to Frank. Okay. Also, also it's pretty terrible. Yeah, we can't do anything before invasion because uh, yeah. uh that's already i mean michael yeah. bailey did legends and i think yeah. he's gonna do millennium and i, I mean that's all okay. there, there's nothing to be okay. done there so after after invasion what what happens uh war of the gods war of the gods <laughs> yeah no um what else uh, i, I kind of need a list here uh let me see uh what do we think Armageddon 2001, do we really want to tackle, like, a full annual every time? Oh, I'm not sure that would be fun. So, same thing with Eclipse of the Darkness Within, plus... Yeah, it's Eclipse of the Darkness Within. Yeah, you re- you've read one, you've read them all. Yeah. Um, yeah Underworld Unleashed is pretty good. It's like it's got, that would be nice. Yeah, it's got villains being upgraded yeah. by a demon. Yeah, that, well, I guess you just did the podcast right there. What about uh, Final Night? Final Night. Well, I kind of enjoyed Final Night. I mean, the whole Hal Jordan thing. Uh, and, you know, the no, no, you just, you just, I, I spoiled it. Didn't yeah, I? Hal Jordan thing. Uh, okay. Yeah. Parallax. Yeah. I, yeah. No. I maybe, mean, maybe we should go a bit further in time. I don't know. Two uh, thousands. That's my blank spot. I don't really know anything. Oh, I'm sure you at least know identity. Oh, 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 no, 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 don't go there. I, uh, I don't know. Infinite Crisis. Well, same difference. It's a lot of Superboy Prime ripping arms off. I'm not sure we want to do that. Ah, uh, yeah, that's kind of cool. We want to be positive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right? It would be nice. Uh, so it's not going to be Genesis. Um, it's yeah. Not, yeah, it's uh, it's not going to be... It can't even be Final Crisis, because I don't think I understand it. I don't even think I have it. I don't know. Maybe uh, something with a... I don't know, crazy villain at the end, maybe? or Well, it can't be Flashpoint. It can't be anything in the New 52. Why would it be Flashpoint? <laughs> Nobody wants Flashpoint. Uh, um, it's not going to be Marvel. No, no, no. Let's not do Marvel. Everything because I, I think um, it's, that's sort of your blank spot. Yeah, it is. And um, I know nothing except for The Thing and maybe some Spider-Man. And my favorite there is Secret Wars, which is uh, Pulp to Pixels podcasts are exactly, already doing a show. Exactly. I, I, I have it. You do? Zero hour. Zero hour? That's great. Crisis in time. It's a big crisis type event. Instead I know. Of, it's different from Invasion. It's it, full of, of older superheroes. and It's got parallax, but, you know, let's... It's, that's something else. That's, whatever. Uh, it's got, you know, time travel kind of stuff, which I love. I love time travel. Different enough from Invasion. Five years later. Oh. So we can look at the DC Universe five years later. I think I'm in love. Uh, I've got a title. You don't have a title right I, now. We go from first strike to zero hour strikes. There we go. Clock bong. I think we have it. We're competing with Midnight, the podcasting hour. <laughs> <laughs> well, zero hour strikes. I love it. And uh, let me do some uh, quick calculations here. You know what? If we bundle up some of these issues together, like I think we can do all the zero issues that came out of it. Okay. The new paradigm for the DC Universe. Yeah. If we bundle some of this stuff up, we can do this in 40 to 45 episodes, just like we did Invasion. Oh, that would be awesome. So I guess we're uh, we're married for another three years. <laughs> well, you know what? I kind of dig it. Zero Hour Strikes coming to you from Fire and Water. You know what? By the end of 2018. <gasps> so soon. Did I say ongoing podcast? I mean you can own the soon-to-be-compiled complete collection of First Strike The Invasion podcasts on Oral Beam Disc or 8-Track Tape, all for the guaranteed low price of ninety-nine ninety-nine ninety-nine. And as an added bonus, 
we will include a free subscription of the first 2.5 episodes of the new Zero Hour Strikes podcast, item 71294, due to come out when the Zero Hour Strikes. Clustercast intergalactronic charges may apply. Oh, who am I kidding? They will definitely apply. <sighs> oh, and if you order promptly, we, the Cluster, will also throw in the complete set of the astounding Superman Movie Minute podcast, item 12158. This program scrutinizes, analyzes, and you can believe a Kryptonian can flyzes, one of Earth's most formidable cinematic representations of its most prominent hypernormal hero, Superman. Reviewing one mi- wait, five minutes at a time? Forgive me. Apparently, some contextual meaning had been lost in the intergalactic translation. Be assured that the intergalactic translator responsible will be severely reprimanded. In the meantime, here's an auditory sampling of the hosts of the Superman movie... 5-Minute Podcast. The ubiquitous Rob Kelly and the beguiling Chris Franklin. Okay, so this uh, 1981 TV spot for Superman 2, if you were a kid when this came out, and of course I was and you were, uh, this commercial is everything you want. You know, it's got Superman. Yes. The, the opening shot is Superman with the, doing the shirt rip. You see the villains oh. tossing stuff around. I mean, it's got the great close-up of uh, Margot Kidder, the great, late, late great Margot Kidder, doing the whole Superman thing. And then, of course, it features a brief moment of the single greatest moment in every comic book movie ever made. Uh, which is the, 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 the general, would you like to step outside bit in the window? We will, we will get into the, uh, the minutia of that when we do Superman two movie minute. But I mean, you know, this thing was meant to just whet your appetite and boy, does it, you know, I mean, it just, just looks like so much fun. It's action packed. I mean, the, 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 the trailer itself, the commercial itself is really only about 24 seconds, but it's just action, action, action. And you see all the main characters, except for Gene Hackman. You don't really see Luthor uh, much Uh -uh. at all. But it's Superman flying, Superman punching, the villains, uh, them picking up the bus. This this had to be so fun to cut because it's just nothing but action beats. Plus, we get finger lasers. Yes. <laughs> I love that. I love that line. It's like uh, each with powers equal to Superman. And it shows Zod shooting a beam out of his finger, <laughs> lifting the guy. The, <laughs> the famous finger laser power. Yeah. <laughs> finger levitation power. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. This is I mean, starting out with the greatest Clark to Superman transformation ever it within the commercial is going to like that's wow. Uh, and, you know, I remember seeing commercials for Superman, too. I don't know if I remember this specific one. But, I mean, you know, not like I wasn't sold anyway, but I right. couldn't wait to go see this thing, obviously. Uh, and I love that it, it's like it gives you just enough, but, you, you know, it doesn't ruin the general care to step outside line. It, it just it, it, it gives you kind of a hint of it, but it doesn't ruin that line for you. So when yeah, you're in the theater. Yeah, yeah, I like that because, you know, so many movies nowadays when we, you know, so many trailers and commercials take the punch out of some of the best scenes in the movie, you know, and it's, uh, there's an art to not showing too much, but just showing just enough to get people excited. And like you said, this is action, action, action. You get the nice shot of them exploding out of the Phantom Zone, which is really cool. Uh, Superman drop kicks. Uh, you get the super drop kick to the face. I mean, that's, that's awesome. You know, <laughs> it's, <laughs> I, 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 I know a little bit about cutting trailers in terms of read some things about from interviews with people that cut them. And I know that it can be difficult. 
in certain, especially for comedies and stuff. And I imagine probably cutting trailers for the original Superman movie to aim at kids was hard because there's just there isn't a whole lot of action uh, necessarily. But this Superman two is wall to wall, and so mm-hmm. this this had to just be a blast to cut together because you're just like let's just have footage of Superman and the villains. That's all you need, and that's that's all. And it goes by in a blur. I mean, it, and it does. You know, it gives you the real quick basis of the plot. It's like, okay, there's Superman. The, the the criminals the criminals are fleed from the Phantom Zone. We see that shot of the the the, the little crystal exploding and them flying out, mm-hmm. which is always great. I love that they fly in all different directions. We see them scanning the countryside. We see Zod in the town with the uh, British kid in Texas with the finger laser, and then they they pick up the bus. Superman flying. Uh, Margot Kidder yelling, "Superman, General!" The villains flying out the window, smashing the Daily Planet. The drop kick. And then him hitting the the giant scaffold, and then the credits. You know, Superman two. The adventure continues. Like you said, what more do you need than right. this? Uh, and and E. G. Marshall as the president, which is one of my favorite credits of all time. Yeah, that, that's great. Yeah. Now the only thing I would disagree is if you've only seen the first part, you haven't seen the best part. I love Superman two, but let's not get carried away. Uh, uh, but- yeah. 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 <laughs> Of course, they're selling it. You know, they're yeah. selling it. So, but yeah, but it, it's you know, it's very, it's very exciting. And and I remember being like super pumped to go see this. And uh, and I'm super pumped to talk about Superman too because uh, I haven't actually rewatched it in quite some time. So it'll be fun to. Uh, of course, I pretty much got it memorized, but yeah. uh, it'll be fun to rewatch it because I haven't rewatched it as often as Superman the movie in. In recent years, uh, even before we started doing Superman Movie Minute. So I'm really looking forward to this. So this this kind of wet, just us doing this kind of made me even more excited about talking about Superman 2. So, yeah, yeah I'm all. As, yeah, as a kid, I loved Superman 2 kind of more than Superman because it's so comic booky. It's just right. such a living comic book. Now, as I've gotten older and supposedly more mature, Superman the movie has supplanted that. I just think it's a better movie and it's more mature and, and has much more mythic themes and, and all that kind of stuff. So I, too, have not watched Superman 2 in actually many, many years. But I, I am looking forward to getting back into it because it is just such pure – It's you know, it's not the Ang Lee Hulk movie where they're bursting out of panels, but it's close enough. You know, it's it's right. almost <laughs> to that level. And so this, this is a really fun trailer. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting to Superman 2. Yep, and before we get to Superman 2, we got plenty of other cool uh, episodes in uh, planned, uh, things to feature that, that uh, other movies that uh, the Superman the movie cast and crew worked on, and more merchandise, so we got lots of Superman the movie stuff to talk about, and of course, Superman 2, so I'm really super, super, super pumped to get to it. Me too. That was but a taste of the Superman movie 5-minute podcast. And again, you get this limited edition complete set in your choice of R.O.Beam disc or 8-track tape when you purchase the First Strike The Invasion podcast set at $99.99.99 for only an additional $99.99.99. That's a savings of not... er... I mean, that's impressive nautical savings you will enjoy on your next lengthy ferry across the spaceways. Now it's time to introduce an item that is so crazy, so wacky, so fun. No, I'm not talking about that tired old crazy wacky fun cast. I am speaking of something far more wild, light years more zany. It's the whimsical Plasticast, item 51441. 
a madcap podcast devoted to the barmy adventures of Earth's human hypernormal rubber band, Plastic Man. Led by Earthen Plaz fanatic Max Romero, sometimes he brings in a guest to join him in his off-the-wall commentary, like in this exclusive audio sampler. Hello everyone and welcome to Plasticast, a podcast dedicated to the longest arm of the law, Plastic Man. I'm your host, Max Romero, and joining me for this special stretchy sampler is the irredeemable Shag. Hello! Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you, Shag. Shag is a co-founder of the Fire and Water Podcast Network and the host of the Justice League International Wahaha Podcast, Who's Who in the DC Universe, and many, many other shows you can find right here at fireandwaterpodcast.com. You're going to hear me on some of the samplers right here in this uh, episode you're listening to. <laughs> no, really? Yeah, shocker. <laughs> So, Shag, why, why don't you tell the people why you hate Plastic Man? <laughs> it's not so much that I hate Plastic Man, is that I resent Plastic oh. Man. There's a difference, uh, which makes me, of course, the ideal guest to have on this episode, I suppose. Anyway, um, my resentment for Plastic Man comes simply from my love for Elongated Man. See, the two are inversely proportional how this works, is I love Elongated Man. I first came to the character in my first Justice League experiences. When I first became a collector of Justice League, I started in the Detroit era. You know, not bragging rights, but it was my era, and I loved it. And I fell in love with Elongated Man. I thought he was totally awesome. And then when he gets bumped from the team eventually, you know, because I carried him. I, I followed him through, uh, you know, uh, Detroit. Then I followed him through Justice League Europe, right? And then when he gets bumped from the team for Plastic Man, I am like, what the heck? The, the guy from the 70s cartoon that says, eat your heart out, ape man. That guy? Really? So I was pretty bummed about that. So I, through probably a lot of the 90s, I did sort of like beat a I hate Plastic Man drum. But wow. it was really because I felt like Elongated Man was getting slighted. But I do have love for Plastic Man. Do you want to hear about that too? If if you can if you can scrape it up, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I I found Plastic Man through the cartoon. So mm-hmm. who says the cartoons don't lead kids to uh, love comic book characters? Is not true. Right. So I I fell in love with the Plastic Man in that first season before play. Now I'm going strictly on memory. I haven't done any research. I haven't gone rewatched it. Am I correct in saying the first season was basically Plaz? Bad luck, Hula, and Penny. There was no Plaz baby. Right? Oh, like no. It and I. No, I'm I, I am on record as be- hating Baby Plaz. Right, but what, am I right in saying Baby Plaz wasn't there in the beginning? No, 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 definitely not. Okay, see, I remember. Okay, so I started watching it before Baby Plaz or Plaz Baby, whatever his name is, came along. <laughs> before Scrappy Doo, a Plastic Man came along. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I was I was a fan of the show, and I liked Bad Luck Hula. Uh, I, I thought he was fun. So when the show changed and they add Baby Plaz, what is his name? You just said it a minute ago. Ba- baby Plaz. No, that's okay, it. Baby Plaz. Okay. When they added Baby Plaz, it was like, really? Because to me, it was purely a scrappy-doo move. So I lost <laughs> interest pretty quickly. So, But I still do have some love for that original series. And then I eventually came around during the Grant Morrison run mm. uh, to realize, yes, I can be upset that Elongated Man's not in my team, but I can still admire what Graham Morrison's doing with Plastic Man cause, and, and Joe right. Kelly after him. And, you know, it was, it was pretty darn cool, actually, what they were doing with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Elongated Man had a good long run on, on JLA, I thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's love to share here, Shag. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I, th- I think the topic of our discussion in just a second here is going to give me a chance to illustrate some of the differences I feel there are between the characters and why I love one more than the other. Oh, all right. Well, let's get into it. Today we'll be talking about the opening from Batman, The Brave and the Bold, Journey to the Center of the Bat. Woohoo! And, and as we've said, it features Plastic Man and Elongated Man. Uh, this opening cartoon comes in at a crisp 2 minutes and 34 seconds and stars Tom Kenny as Plastic Man and Babyface, Sean Donnellan as Elongated Man, and Diedrich Botter as Batman. The mini-episode opens with the Babyface gang blowing up a candy factory safe as part of a heist. But little does he know that Plastic Man and Elongated Man are on the case. After some brief confusion about who the guy in purple is, the gang opens fire with their Tommy guns. The doughy duo start rounding up the gang, arguing the whole time, mostly about who's the better crime fighter and who Batman prefers as a partner. Soon enough, Plaz and EM are literally tripping over each other to catch Babyface, eventually finding themselves tangled up in a taffy puller. Babyface makes a quick getaway, but not quick enough. Batman is on the scene, and with one punch, he takes out both Babyface and the taffy puller. He also has a knockout punch for Plaz and EM. Between the two of them, he says, he prefers to work alone. <laughs> you know, really? Can you can you blame him? Oh, after that, uh, after that encounter, absolutely. So, so tell me, what do you what do you think of this okay. this little mini episode? First of all, everything in Batman: Brave and the Bold is a blast. It really is. It's such a it fun, is. energetic cartoon. And this one is absolutely it was no exception. It's super fun. I love them teaming up. I love them tripping over each other. Uh, it made me laugh. And the whole, no, Batman wants to team up with me. No, Batman wants to team up with me. That kind of thing. It made for a lot of fun humor. So I enjoyed that quite a bit. Yeah, and I and I think that is kind of classic Ralph, you know, Ralph did me, elongated man, and Plaz, because in the comics, whenever they're in the same room, they're always sniping at each other. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and, right. a lo- and a lot of that always has to do with elongated man kind of feeling overshadowed by Plastic Man. And that's just because, you know, Plastic Man has this big overblown... Uh, personality and elongated man he's a family man he 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 likes the spotlight also but he's not quite as bombastic as plastic man is and he really values his own intelligence his uh detecting skills and all those sorts of things which plastic man probably couldn't care less about right right i mean their powers are not all right so let's get into some of the issues with this cartoon uh from the way the characters are portrayed which also sort of demonstrates why i the distinction between the characters Mm-hmm. First off, the characters in this are, as far as their power sets go, are played identical. They have the exact same powers in this cartoon, yes. which is not the case. Which no. Which is not the case. No. I mean, Plastic Man has that fun bit where he makes a Batman up on his shoulder, and then he turns his <laughs> fist into a Batman, you know, like a bust, like a statue, which was cool. But Elongated Man transforms into Babyface. That's not one of his powers. No, I had a problem with that, too. Yep, yep. And the, the another huge difference between these characters is, you know, uh, de- you mentioned a second ago, the detective skills. Mm-hmm. Elongated man, I, I, I did a little more research on this to make sure I'm right, but he's supposed to be on par with Batman's detective skills. I always thought he was second to Batman, but doing the research I did today, no, no, he's supposed to be on par with Batman's detective skills, really? which is darn impressive because he's the Dark Knight detective, folks. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, besides Sherlock Holmes, these are the next guys in line. I mean, that's one thing that's incredibly impressive about Elongated Man. That they usually work into his independent stories, his detective skills, and there was no chance to showcase this at all. I mean, if they taken, if this cartoon had started five minutes earlier, I bet it would have been Ralph who found the hideout or found or figured out that Babyface was going to attack that place. I would be willing to concede that maybe they were working together and Elongated Man is the one who found the hideout. But like you said, yeah. The complete transformation is not something that that elongated man can usually do. I don't think he's ever been able to do that, right? He just kind of stretches. 
he can stretch. Uh, he can he can change his appearance on his face a little bit, but it's painful and it's not easy, and he doesn't do it very often. And something that threw me off a little bit about this too was his voice. I, I would not have expected Elongated Man to sound like that at all. Right. Yeah, I was just kind of the same way. I, the guy was fine. There was nothing wrong with him. I think his enunciation, his articulation, and all that was fine. Mm-hmm. But it just it didn't sound like a Ralph voice to me. I imagine Ralph Moore is, I don't know, a little higher pitched, family man kind of sounding. Yeah, yeah, you know, kind of a TV dad, you know. Alan, <laughs> Alan Thick. Yeah, yeah, I can see that, yeah. There you go. Yeah, for sure. What did you think of, of uh, Edward G. Robinson as Babyface? Oh, he was hilarious. That, that character was all right. I mean, my first note I wrote down was love the, like, 1940s kind of music, love the 1930s gangster. Absolutely loved it, thought it was hysterical. Super, I mean, that kind of character only works in, a, like, a, a Brave and the Bold you know, Batman Brave and the Bull kind of situation where it's so ludicrous, but who cares? It's fun. And it, in this comic setting, it was super awesome. Yeah, I thought so too. And I kind of like, I don't know, I don't think it was probably on purpose, but it was, it felt kind of like a nod to the Joker to me. Oh, just really? in the sense that he's, well, in the sense that he, that Babyface is purposely knocking over a, a candy factory. Mm. <laughs> you know, it just seems, okay. it just seems kind of like there's a theme going on with Babyface there. Okay. I, I I didn't see the Joker thing, but I definitely caught the candy factory matching a baby face kind of thing. Like, you know, any kind of Batman villain follows their theme. It's a, it's an obsession of theirs. So, yeah. Right. By the way, there's one more power I forgot to mention about uh, Elongated Man. His ability to, quote-unquote, smell danger, or his nose twitches yeah. whenever there's a mystery. Now, it, some comics argue that it doesn't really do that. He doesn't have that power at all, and he fakes it. Mm-hmm. But um, either way, his nose twitches when there's a mystery. So we didn't, we didn't get to see that either, which is a little disappointing. Now, flip side of that is I'm playing up Elongated Man. Plastic Man's powers are insane. He can do anything. He can transform into <laughs> yeah. anything, any size, practically any shape. You know, he can make holes in himself. He can move his organs around. I mean, yeah. just he completely versatile. So he's tremendously more powerful than Elongated Man. But I think Elongated Man's a more relatable character. Oh, Plastic Man! You know, I I'm gonna I'm gonna defend Plastic Man. Here's why I think he he relates so well with Batman is mm-hmm. because I think they have a similar background. You know, they Yellow were Brian. yeah they were both orphaned as kids. Okay. Uh, the only difference is is Plaz you know ended up on the streets and that's why he became a criminal and and all that sort of thing. But you know, if not for the money, if not if not for the vast Wayne fortune, you know, it, it could have been the same thing for Batman. I guess that's possible. I guess yeah. that's possible. I mean, that's the only major difference between myself and Bruce Wayne is the amazing fortune. <laughs> You're more of a wild dog kind of guy, I guess. Or yeah, right. I'm low rent. That's right. I, my, my superhero costume comes from Goodwill. Actually, that's correct. <laughs> so, uh, as far as long, I just want to say one more thing about Elongated yeah. Man. I love that they gave him the purple costume. Yeah, uh, it looks more classic. I never. Never really dug the version they gave him the, in the Justice League to try and make him purposely look more like Plastic Man with the red costume, red and yellow costume. That was obviously intentional to look like Plastic Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like the purple. My favorite is personally when he's in, in uh, Justice League Europe when it's purple and white with the giant EM on his costume. That's my favorite. But still, purple's, purple's Ralph's color. That's what he should be wearing. With the <laughs> yeah, mask. Right. With the mask. I agree. I agree. Do you think that they make a good pair? Do you think Plastic Man and Elongated Man are a good pair? Not really, no. Uh, I mean, this bit was funny. This was really a clever bit. But I don't know that the two characters together on a regular basis would really work. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, if you, from a power level, Elongated Man is just a weaker version of Plastic Man. I mean, he was created, supposedly, you know, as a shadow of Plastic Man anyway. Uh, or a poor man's Plastic Man, however you want to look at it. 
But so I would say that uh, no, nah, probably it's not something I'd want to see a lot. But it, it would be fun. Like remember when they used to do Earth One, Earth Two crossovers, right. and there was always a party where they, you know, the Justice were sitting around drinking punch and eating crackers, and they, you know, right, they right. break off in a little pairs, and you're like, oh, there's the two Hawkmen from Earth One, Earth Two. That's so cool, you know, whatever. I would love. To, I like those kind of ideas. Seeing these two together at parties, hanging out in the corner, talking and trying to one up each other. I dig that. Mm-hmm. But uh, an ongoing situation, probably not. Uh, do you feel differently? No, no, I, I, I agree. I think uh, Elongated Man and Plastic Man work best when Ralph is kind of put out by the attention Plastic Man gets, and Plastic Man's complete befuddlement by that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know that, I think that's coming from a Plastic Man fan's view. I would prefer to see, you know, Plastic Man <laughs> being on the back foot, going, "Well, why is Ralph getting all the attention for solving the crime?" You know, well, for yeah. example. Here we go. Justice League Unlimited. Uh, the 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 episode. What was it? Um, the the greatest story never told. How mm. Plastic Man gets recruited to go save the day, right? Right. And everyone's fussing about that. And Elongated Man's fussing, going like, "Well, they don't need two stretchy guys." Blah 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 blah. But then Elongated Man comes in and saves the day. And John Stewart says to him, "That's about the slickest move I've ever seen." And it's because <laughs> Elongated Man Plastic Man. See, I think that's the better scenario. Oh, okay. Well, I'll, I'll let you. I'll let you have it this time since you're the guest. Technically, it's a Plastic Man show, so I should probably be kinder. But oh well. Well, that's fine. I, I knew what I was getting into. <laughs> but that will, you know, this is meant to be a sampler, so I think that will do it. Unless you had anything else to to add. Nope. I think it's I think that's great. And you know what? Um I think I would love to see and this could be for another day. Uh I'd love to see some of uh like a listing of some of the issues where Ralph and uh and and Plastic Man actually met. I'd love to go back and read some of those. Oh, I know yeah. I know there's a couple issues here and there, but I'd love to see those. So something to think about for the future. We'll do that in the future and I hope when we do, you know, you'll come back on. I I would love to. I'd be honored. Well, thanks so much, Shag. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me, and uh, I think my nose is twitching, so I better go. There's a mystery afoot. <laughs> okay, well, for everyone else, be sure to follow Plasticast, JLI Bwahaha Podcast, and all the other great shows on the Fire and Water Podcast Network at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Until next time, we'll see you in the home stretch. This kind of incompetence is exactly why Batman always chooses me. He'd rather work with me any day of the week. <laughs> Truth be told, between the two of you, I prefer to work alone. That was a sample of the pliably pleasing Plasticast. Item 51441 on the FW Summer Sampler Super Spectacular. Brought to you by The Cluster. Oh, and the Fire and Water Podcast Network. For only $99.99.99. And did you know that the impeccable plastic host of Plasticast, Max Romero, is also the host of The Mirror Factory, item 45106, a new podcast that explores the wonders of earthen literary fiction. Here is an idea of what you can expect. Hey there, welcome to The Mirror Factory. I'm the foreman, Max Romero. So let me tell you a little bit about what we do here. The Mirror Factory is a podcast where we talk about your favorite passages from novels, novellas, and short stories. Each episode features a different guest, who will tell us a little about the book their passage is from and why it means so much to them. Then that guest will give us a special reading of their favorite passage for our listeners. If you think you'd like to be a guest in The Mirror Factory, drop us a line at Factory Mirror on Twitter, The Mirror Factory on Facebook, 
or at mirrorfactorypodcast at gmail.com. The Mirror Factory is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Time to get back to work. Until next time, read a book. The Mirror Factory Podcast can also be yours for the low, low price of $99.99.99. And as a special offer to Clustercast subscribers who purchase the Plasticast for $99.99.99, you can make it a Max Romero combo by adding in the Mirror Factory for just two additional cycle installments of $99.99.99. That is twice the max at max the price. Our next group of segments are a real treat. One of the most responsive programs on the Fire and Water Podcast Network is the Who's Who Podcast, item 84120, which covers every entry of the definitive directory of hypernormals and normal normals in the DC universe. And not to be outdone, the Ohatmu or Not Podcast, item 82119, explores every entry in the official handbook of the Marvel Universe. Whatever that means. I mean, there is only one universe, am I right? That is why it's called a universe and not a multiverse, correct? Multiverse. Now that just sounds silly. At any rate, Ohatmu or not takes a more provocative approach by assessing how each Marvel Comics hypernormal or normal normal would stimulate the hormones within a panel of sultry sounding female dilettantes. So where do you find out who's who? And who's hot? Look no further than the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Via the cluster, of course. Hey everyone, Siskoid here. If you enjoy Ohatmu or not, in which I let six lovely ladies look at Marvel characters and pick them apart, this is going to be something special. Not Ohatmu or not, but who's hot and who's not. We're cracking open DC's directory and looking at a few entries, specifically the three women who have been one of Wonder Woman's most enduring foes, the Cheetah. A few months ago, they announced that Kristen Wiig is joining the cast of the second Wonder Woman movie as the Cheetah, apparently. So I thought it'd be nice to give the girls a preview. But first, let's meet them. They are Isabel. Hi. Shotgun. Hey. Jose. Hello. Elise. Sup. <laughs> Natalie. Hey. And we have Amélie on the computer. She's been pre-recorded. It's the future, guys. So we will uh, invoke her uh, at a certain point. So we're looking at three images from DC's uh, Who's Who, the definitive directory of the DC Universe, uh, and uh, the cheetah. So there are three versions. Three women have been the cheetah. Let me show you the first. The 1940s cheetah, Priscilla Rich. She was a wealthy socialite with an overwhelming inferiority complex, 
who organized a charity benefit and became insanely jealous of the guest of honor, Wonder Woman. <laughs> After trying to murder the heroine, she went home and was confronted by her own evil persona in the mirror, which is pictured in the entry, clad in a cheetah costume. It took control from then on, and the cheetah led a life of crime using cat-like grace and razor-sharp claws that could cut through solid steel. She's devious, vain, aggressive, and mostly in it for the thrill of adventure. Also pictured pulling Wonder Woman's hair. And, yeah. and also without the skull caps, you can see her hair. Art by Trina Robbins. Yeah, the fight in the background is very distracting. <laughs> it's also very typical girl fight. Yeah. fight. I don't just, like it. It's kind of sexual. Pulling hair and also like the hands like right at her mouth. And look at how her leg is all like twisted around her leg. I don't <laughs> like That's it. Golden Age Wonder Woman for you. It's all about bondage. <laughs> I think she's hot physically. What's going on with the tail? The it's tail very is, thick, isn't yes, it? Yes, very fluffy. <laughs> the tail is too big. It like the tail length. is like the size of her leg. Well, which everything. Is confusing. Well, everything about her hip is kind of off. I don't know if it's the posture yeah, she's I in, think but so. it looks like it's too wide and disjointed. It has a life of its own. The tail. I feel like the hat with the ears feels like a costume. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like uh-huh. that. That that part of it feels like the costume party that she turned evil. The rest could be a villain, but the hat looks kind of silly. It's a and one step too far. It, like I wish she was just like wearing ears. Yeah. Mm. Like if this was colored differently, she could also be a bear or a monkey or something. <laughs> like it feels just like just a little bit generic. I and think I mean it's the roundness of the ears. Mm-hmm, that's very bear-like. And look at her hair. I mean, where did she put all that hair? Oh. She has a good wig cap. Yeah, oh, no, yeah. Wig, it, it, wig caps are intense. She's a socialite. You can afford it. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of like uh, those swimming caps that old ladies have with, the flowers? with like, flowers. Uh, I have one. Because you're an old lady. I am. <laughs> <laughs> so, so she just went to a fancy dress party. It was like, you know what? I hate that girl. <laughs> I hate Wonder Woman. Honestly, I'm turning to a life of crime. <laughs> Imagine if she would have been dressed as anything else. Well, she wasn't well, no, she dressed wasn't. as that. No. Oh, she's seen she's, in the, she saw herself oh, in the mirror. I thought it was like actually like her costume. Oh, I no. would have loved that way more. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Imagine if she would just like had thrown a costume party and was just like, I'm so angry and evil right now. I'm staying in this costume. It's kind of like if in Legally Blonde, <laughs> she just like became a bunny villain. She looks very angry. She has a lot of issues. <laughs> Does she do things besides being a socialite? Like, she throws parties, but does she... Do I think things? after this, she's just insane. Strange plots to capture or kill Wonder Woman. Does she run very fast? She's a cheetah. <laughs> Her name is Priscilla Rich. God. <laughs> that is a... Oh, Sorry to all the Priscilla Rich out there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there are boatloads. <laughs> well, is the Golden Age cheetah hot or not? Amelie? Hot, I think. I could have done without the headpiece part. It would have been cooler with just her hair loose. Uh, but I really, really like the print and the tail, the way it's done. I'm not a huge fan of the like foot claws <laughs> on the costume. That's kind of creepy and weird. But I do like the way that it fits, and I love that tail. That's just so cool. Not sure how it's sticking up, but... <laughs> wires. Yeah, I just noticed the foot claws too. Mm. Like, before she said it, I was like, ooh. I think what's weird about the foot claws is they just, because they're just, like, lines, like, it doesn't look like a claw. It just looks like somebody, like, tacked on. Yeah. And owl 
disagree with Amelie. I don't like the print. It is too big of a spot for cheetahs. Yeah, no, I It I'm is not, not accurate. I like her dress in the background. It's, yeah. That's a nice dress. Polka dots. Mm. Probably sequins. Sequins. It's She's a ball. Rich, you know. I think for the most part, I like the costume. I agree with the head thing, like we were saying earlier. Like, I wish she was just wearing, like, ears and her hair. But I think it makes sense. Like, this costume makes sense to me. It's sleek. She can probably move around in it pretty easily. The claws are included in it, which makes sense because that's part of her powers, so... I feel very lukewarm. Like, I'm not like, oh my god, she's hot, but she's not ugly. I'm just lukewarm. Yeah, it's not exciting. It's not for me. I like it, I just don't like how it was executed. A for effort. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. The 1980s cheetah, Deborah Domain... Also a young debutante. In her case, she felt guilty about her wealth and made amends by joining an ecological extremist group. She was then summoned by her reclusive aunt, Priscilla Rich, who (laughs) revealed her darkest secret to her before dying, her secret identity as the Cheetah. So just then, she was kidnapped by the villainous cult leader known as Cobra, who wanted to recruit the original Cheetah but would make do with a new model. So he brainwashed her with images of pollution and ecological disaster and shock therapy. That's oh. that's pictured. You see it in the background. Yeah. Oh, my God. Which yeah. all drove her hopelessly insane. She came out of it as a new cheetah, avenger of wronged nature and savior of oppressed animal kind. After Cobra was defeated, she continued her life as an eco-terrorist using skills and a costume much like her aunt's. She is completely fanatical to her cause. Almost a zombie in its service because of Cobra's brainwashing. Mm-hmm. Uh, in The Serpent, she's also shown fighting Wonder Woman, of course. Art by Steve Layahola. I'm digging this outfit a lot more than the other. Me too. What is up with her hands? Yeah, her it's hands gloss. are creepy as hell. She just let her nails grow, I guess. I don't like the hands. Uh, but it's like they're doing... Yeah. They're, it's, it's like a cat. It's, it's a unnatural. The is not pleasant. Also, her face doesn't look insane. <laughs> oh, she looks frustrated. Yeah. Mad. Yeah. I don't think she looks mad. I think she's like, hey girl, what's up? It's <laughs> Halloween. <laughs> it's Halloween. I'm a slutty cheetah. I, it's, no, this, I'm honestly, not going to slut shame. It's, this actually kind of looks like my Josie and the Pussycats. Uh, Halloween costume yes. from oh, actually, years yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah that's you true. had the deep V to your belly button. That's... Well, I had white here. Oh, right. That right, I glued right. on. Yes, <laughs> it was a process, but it does look like this a lot. But the one thing I will say, I don't like that the V got deeper in this one. Like the the other one was like maybe like just chest. This one is like below chest, and I don't I don't think it's necessary. Like I, I actually like it more. I like it. I don't think it's practical. No, I mean boob would get out of but there on so easily. Most of the time, it's not. Not very practical. <laughs> but, yeah, well, no. but I feel like the suit is more flattering. The tail makes more sense. Yes, yeah. I love the tail a lot more. And I like the ears. That is just yeah. ears and hair. Yeah. They basically fixed the main things that bothered us about the other yeah. one. Except they put the claws and the fingers instead of the toes. Yeah, her feet look okay now. Her hands are messed up. Her hands are like <laughs> in a horror film. I like the hands. It reminds oh. me a lot of villains in anime, which I don't... Like, they're creepy, but I find it's, like, The hand looks broken to me. I like, it looks broken. Yeah, I understand, I understand what you mean, and I agree to a certain extent. It, it links more with the cheetah persona that way, but there's nothing said about new physical abilities or anything. It's just brainwashed. So why is brainwashing or creating these hands? Is it possible that's the nails... That make it look worse than it actually is? Probably. Mm-hmm. Maybe she's just like this, but since 
Because th- these things nails. can cut steel, so obviously they're <clears throat> added to the finger. Oh, oh well then. The whole environmental thing, I feel, is very 80s. I don't know why, but growing up in the 80s, as I am older than most of you, not you, Mike. of course you know this Um, but growing up in the 80s there were a lot of like environmental cartoons and the environment was a huge like it it became the in thing the popular thing so captain planet (laughs) so many cartoons were about the environment so it makes sense in the time frame almost to the point that is cliche well is the 80s zombie echo warrior cheetah hot or not Hot. This kind of corrects a couple of the issues that I had with the other one. So the hair is loose with just the ears, and there's no weird claws on the feet. The tail isn't as cool, but the cleavage is pretty awesome. And I like the concept of her, but I question why women who turn insane always go for cats. Why is that? Crazy cat ladies. Because Catwoman was much of the same. I really feel bad for her that she, she was just like... No, when I'm rich, I should do something about some stuff that I care about and just ended up being brainwashed yeah. and horribly. Yeah, that's a bummer. That's a bad weekend. <laughs> that's that's what you think it would take a weekend to blow. Well, you know what? It, takes it depends weekend. the strength of your mind. <laughs> Me, it's more like she was doing something on that Saturday morning and she agreed, and then the next Sunday, it's like, oh, look where I am now. That's a 24 hours to brainwash next you. Next set. I'd love to know the actual time. <laughs> like, yeah. in my mind, it's like they have intense technologies of like lasers and wheels. <laughs> that's that's chemical. <laughs> oh, you know that fancy wheel technology. Yeah, I mean, they have lasers and man's third invention. <laughs> I don't know how long it would take. I think it takes a couple of days. <laughs> yeah, probably to really break somebody. Yeah. So, are you saying hot or not? I think she's hot. hot. Yeah. Hot-ish. I could deal without the horror hands, but beyond I, that. Can you imagine the back scratches, though? Mm. Oh, Does man, she talk yeah. about anything except the environment, or is she just constantly on and on? It's like she drones. She oh. repeats herself. She is yeah. empty. Yeah, the insaneness wow. kind of kills it for me. Yeah, that's a bummer. The current cheetah, Barbara Minerva, was an archaeologist in search of a legendary lost race of cat people. She never found them, but she did stumble upon an ancient artifact and ritual that turned her into a cat woman, or, as we came to find out, possessed her with the spirit of a cat goddess. Imbued with animal powers of speed, strength, agility, night vision, claws that can cut through brick, and a prehensile tail she sometimes uses to choke her opponents. In the Serpent, she's shown jumping in the cityscape, fighting Wonder Woman, and her real face along with her aide uh, and a caged cheetah. As an archaeologist, Barbara is respected, but has a reputation for being ambitious and ruthless. She'll do anything to get ahead and damn the ethics. She is self-centered and intimidating and obsessed with finding a way to reverse her transformation. She's been known to hunt down and eat people. Oh. Hard <laughs> by George Perez. Holy shit. That Inti- got weird. What a weird what? last sentence. <laughs> intimidating is not the is word strong anymore. enough. A word to describe not her. Not anymore anything. after she eats people. 
I love her tail. Her tail is basically like that's what a cheetah's tail is supposed to be. Man, I can't wait to eat my Cheetos. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were gonna. Man, I can't wait to eat people. <laughs> um, so she's still an archaeologist. She's she looks like that and just sort of like goes out to archaeology stuff. Like, how do you match anything with those prints? <laughs> mm. <laughs> like, it bothers me deeply. Like. I, can't, I couldn't wear anything. I well, really she's like her. not wearing much. I think it's her skin. That's, that's, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, yes, yes. But, like, you can't go to the store. <laughs> but put on me. a jean jacket and nobody notices. Yeah, you wear, still need shoes to get in somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Full-length pants and shirts and shoes and gloves. And then you, there's only the face. That's kind of weird. But, but you can't wear... Have a rash. This is probably, like, the most realistic cheetah look. I think it's my favorite. I think I hated the most. Well, I love her hair. Yeah. And I actually like the whole fact that it's her skin thing. I mean, not not for her. That sucks for her. Yeah. But it's cool looking. I so, think it's a little too serious for me. Uh, is this like the, the one they're sh- gonna picture? Do you know? She's probably gonna be playing Barbara Minerva. Okay. So this is probably the origin they're gonna give her. Okay. Like, is it like a print on her skin or does she have fur? Yeah, it's furry. Mm. I think, like, yeah, it's it's just a little too literal. Yeah, I, like I prefer it to be a little more fun. This is just a little serious. The chef thinks the real claws. This is not a costume design. I feel like you like the last two ones are a better origin story. I I feel like the first one is a little fluffy. It's like, oh no, she went to a party. She became insane. (laughs) (laughs) She got a reflection. I feel like this is an interesting background story. Mm -hmm. Give that backstory to the second costume, and I would be completely down for it. You know what? I kind of like that the costume isn't overly sexy. She's obviously like not wearing much, but I kind of like that she's more animal-like and... It's not, I need to be sexy because I'm a woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Although her boobs are, are like really defined. <laughs> there are present. <laughs> I like that she's trying to switch it over to reverse the thing. I kind of like to imagine what an ancient cat people would look like. Like, I don't think they'd be building many monuments. Just be like laying around. <laughs> Sun. Sunbathing. It's like, oh, look, a thing. Just flop over. <laughs> or like, they build a monument. Oh, I'm going to push it off the table. Yeah. <laughs> it's just broken pottery. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, look, the ruins of this. No, it's just, just broken pottery. It meant to be that way. She looks majestic. Oh, yeah. Leaning out the building in the first, like, background going. She looks awesome. Perfect hair. Yeah. yeah. So is the post-crisis cheetah hot or not? Amidi? Hot? My brain is trying to wrap itself around the fact that she's, like, actually the animal and, like, the musculature and everything is very, very feline-like. A little scary. But I think it's really cool that she can actually use that tail. Still not a fan of those toe claws. (laughs) I would not want to cross her on the street. She looks terrifying. (laughs) But I think she's still pretty hot. I agree with the tail thing, though. She's the first one that uses the tail for things. That's awesome. Yeah, Mm -hmm. choking people, which she then eats. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure sure that two other ones use it for balance. She's growing on me. The first one is the silliest and the one I hate the most. But she's becoming closer to the second one. I like it. It's just the fur all over the body that's like, I just... Of all of them, like, this is the one I want to see the least. The other ones are like, you know, 
cool cat costumey kind of people. This is like you're re- you're meeting a human cheetah, like a real human cheetah. That's scary as hell. I wonder how they're gonna play it in the film because Kristen Wiig is still a comedy actress mm. most of the time. So mm-hmm. maybe maybe she's not playing a comedy role at all, and she's gonna be like straight terrifying. But I'm wondering if they're sort of kind of gonna mix a few things here and there just to probably yeah. have that comedy there. The mirror scene. <laughs> I think she's hot after all. Yeah. Okay, which one are you dating? You have to pick one. Number Second two. one. Me too. Okay, fuck Mary, kill. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> um. Number three, kill? Really? Yeah, because yeah. she's going to eat me. Okay. She'll kill me first. Yeah, I'm not going to keep her alive. I'm sorry. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Mary, number two. Fuck number one, because it's... No, I, I would marry time. number one. I would I w- marry number one and fuck number two, because number two, I don't want to get married with her, because she would only speak about the environment, yeah. and I'm already tired of it. That's already long. depressing okay. as it is. Plus... We'll switch it around again. You know, just use the first one's money. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> Honestly, why not? <laughs> Would the first one just be talking about how much she hates Wonder Woman? I can handle that more than because we're I all going to die. And then I can actually tell her how much I hate other people. That's bonding right there. That's that's how you build, build you're a marriage. Be like, Maybe the third one would be all right. After <laughs> <laughs> she ate you, yeah. While she's <laughs> eating eat you. everyone. I don't want to say she eats some people. Like, what happens? Like, anytime she'd come home and be like, are you hungry, honey? No. And you're like, oh, who did she eat now? Shit. Are we going to have to move again? <laughs> you're going to get hair where you don't even know you can in between your Oops. You're going to scratch that face up. I want to know what you do with your mouth. I eat with it. I am a full-blown woman. But I'm not on Xanax because I don't need it. Wait a minute. Did you run the wrong clip, Mr. Suru? Do not bother with excuses, Suru. Just play the other clip and I will sort it out afterwards. Like always. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Hello, and welcome to this sample of Who's Who in the DC Universe. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag. Along me, as always, is my esteemed co-host, Rob Kelly. Rob, we're here to talk about who's who, aren't we? No, we're not. And by the way, (laughs) since this this is just a sample of the regular Who's Who podcast, this means that this segment will only be two hours long. Hey, isn't that nice? Look at it. It's like a gift from us to them. Look at that. We're we're generous. (laughs) Well, folks, no, we're not going to talk about who's who, but we're kind of going to. We decided that, you know, you've already heard by this point the uh, Ohatmu or Not segment with the with the girls talking about Who's Who comics. They're like stepping on our turf, right? They left their Marvel Universe and stepped over here in D.C. So Rob and I decided, okay, you know, we can play that game. So we're going to step away from Who's Who for a minute and go talk about the official handbook of the Marvel Universe. But we're going to keep it in the family, aren't we, Rob? Yes, we are talking about two uh, fire and water related characters. 
We're going to pick specifically from the official handbook of the Marvel Universe two characters from the Squadron Supreme. One character named Amphibian and another character named Nuke. And if you understand what that means, you're going to see that we're not really straying far from home. So now, as always with uh, the Who's Who podcast, what we like to do is describe to you the, the entry. And, and for this Marvel Universe entry, what you've got is you've got a giant block of text, at least for one of the entries. And then you've got an image of the character and then you've got an action shot. You know, of course, the data includes your personal height, weight, history, powers, all that kind of stuff. And our goal is to describe it so you don't have to have the issue in front of you. Uh, so, Rob, why don't you kick us off by talking about Amphibian? Yes, uh, Amphibian is one of the original members of the Squadron Supreme. Well, no, maybe not original, original, but one of the early ones. He first appeared in Avengers number 145. Uh, his listing in Ohatmu is pretty brief. It's just a, he, he just got a, uh, a section of the larger Squadron Supreme uh, team listing. His secret identity is Kingsley Rice. Get it? <laughs> Arthur Perry, Kingsley Rice. I think we got that. Uh, <laughs> basically, yeah, um, I, his color scheme is uh, orange and blue as opposed to orange and green. His blue, though, has those same similar Aquaman scales. Uh, he's rocking a headband, uh, and he's got red hair, unlike uh, Arthur Perry. And the, the closest thing, I mean, obviously the powers are, the power set is, is similar in the name, of course, makes you think of Aquaman, A for Amphibian, A for Aquaman. The big connection, I'd say, between these two characters, other than the, the war, they're the water guy of the particular team, is that in the Squadron Supreme miniseries, written by Mark Grunewald, which was a great series, mm-hmm. like that's an underrated series. Um, there's this whole thing where the government starts regulating superheroes and Amphibian is one of the members who says, I'm not, I don't want to be part of the Squadron Supreme if they're going to become this sort of like shock troop force. And he resigns in protest, yep. which is a kind of an Aquamani thing to do. So I, I really like that. They, they managed to keep like, to me, the most important part of the character for uh, Mr. Kingsley Rice. <laughs> I, I'm just shocked he didn't disband the Squadron Supreme. <laughs> that would have been great. <laughs> Just in case there's one or two people who don't know the gimmick with the Squadron Supreme, they were created by Marvel as an analog to the Justice League. That's why you've got Amphibian as Aquaman, you've got Hyperion as Superman, Nighthawk as Batman. You all, everybody had parallels. And so that's why we chose, obviously, Aquaman and, and, and Firestorm here. And I, I should say, this came, this entry of Amphibian, you can find it in the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, Volume 2. Uh, so that's the deluxe edition, issue number 12, so cover dated November 1986. He's also a mutant, Rob. Look at that. That's right. That's right. Which technically, I guess, Arthur Curry's a mutant too, really, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, he's born with power, so yeah. that makes him a makes him a mutant. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah. It's uh, it, this was this was he was never given a lot of characterization, even in the miniseries. I haven't read the miniseries in god decades, but he was never that significant to the Squadron Supreme. So uh, Nighthawk and Hyperion, and, and even as we'll get to Nuke, Nuke gets like a fuller listing than this guy. So he was just sort of. Filling a slot, you know, the way they had a Hawkman, uh, you know, character and an Adam character, they needed to have an Aquaman character. And so, but he, and he you know, he, he does a serviceable job. I mean, they talk about he's 180 pounds, six foot tall. He's a little muscular to just be 180 pounds. I weigh more than this guy. You got to be kidding me. Uh, and he's got he's, he's got bare feet, which is actually makes more sense. I like for a swim character. I really yeah. like the way it straps around his, uh, I don't know, his arch. And then, yeah, right. but the feet are the feet and the heel are Exposed. I think that's a cool look. I, I don't. I don't like the look. I don't like the look, but it makes more sense. It, oh, it certainly okay. makes more sense to be a first swimming character. I like. It. Uh, so I've read the Squadron Supreme miniseries in recent years, and you're right. He doesn't get a lot of characterization. If you really want to see more of Amphibian, I would actually go to the earlier Squadron Supreme appearances, like this Defenders. Uh, I'm sorry, Avengers 145, and there's some Defenders right. appearances as well. 
you're probably going to get more, maybe not characterization, but you're going to get more action of what amphibians are doing yeah. in those is probably the best way to say it. Yeah. And there were, there were just less members to deal with. By the time you got to the miniseries, the team has got like 20 members. In the original uh, version, there was only like eight or nine. They were trying to keep it – they're scaling it to the Justice League at the time. Well, not just that too, but it, it was someone else's book. You know, it was the Avengers book or right. it was the Defenders book or whoever. So really, you know, while you've got these eight or nine Squadron Supreme members, you still got to focus on all the main superheroes too. So they didn't get a lot of chance to really get into characterization until the miniseries. And like you said, they kind of wrote him to be an out. So, yeah. Yep. In fact, if you want to hear more about Squadron Supreme, you can go back to Fire and Water, um, or Aquaman and Firestorm, the Fire and Water podcast, episode number 160. It was an episode specifically dedicated to the Squadron Supreme. It was me and Paul Spataro. I'll be fair, we were kind of talking off the cuff. We didn't do a lot of research. It was one of those where we needed to get an episode out that week, so Paul and I said, let's do this on short notice. We didn't get a chance to reread much in advance. We did some research. We really didn't have the Mark Grunewald miniseries committed to memory at that point, so some of our facts were probably a little sketchy. But we had a nice talk about Squadron Supreme. We went all the way back and talked to their beginnings and all, all the steps along the way. So if, if you like Squadron Supreme, it's worth checking out episode 160 of that show. Uh, are we ready to move on to the, the real star of this episode? I think so. Well, I guess what I love about Nuke is that it allows you to say his name without having to trip up on the pronunciation. Wow. That was clever. That was well done, sir. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> All right. First thing I want to talk about is Nuke is just specifically the costume because he's, he's gone through two different costumes. The first costume was, was flat out hideous. Uh, it was basically a yellow bodysuit, and he had a blue tunic, and his chest emblem was actually an atomic explosion. Like, the yellow actually was in the shape of almost like a mushroom cloud. Like, the explosion was happening on his chest in the costume. He had a, a blue sort of cowl, but his hair was exposed. He had long hair and a ponytail. It was, you know, it was designed to supposed to look kind of like Firestorm, except instead of yellow and red, it was yellow and blue. And uh, it was really hideous, and then they redesigned it for the Squadron Supreme miniseries. We've been talking about this Mark Ruinwald miniseries, and gave him a radiation containment suit, which looks pretty awesome actually it's uh yellow arms yellow legs he's got a blue again tunic kind of center section with briefs and blue gloves and blue boots and little head red highlights and his long flowing hair i think it's a great looking drawing i wish i knew the artist was you know we didn't mention the artist on squadron supreme's amphibian and we don't have the artist here on uh, nuke because they don't list it here on marvel's universe now it's somewhere in the issue probably i don't have it in front of me right now but, you know, that's just another way that Who's Who is uh, proven to be vastly superior, because the artist's name is written on every single entry, wouldn't you say? I agree with that entirely. <laughs> so, this entry for Nuke that we're going to talk about comes from the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, Deluxe Edition number 19, from December 1987, specifically, The Book of the Dead. So, yes, Nuke, by the way, first appearance, right, 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 is uh, Defenders number 12, guess who created Nuke? Uh-uh. Defenders number well, Defenders one twelve, not twelve. Oh, did I say? 12? Well, I meant to say one twelve, but okay. That would be probably James Demetrius. JMD Demetrius, baby, yes, created new. That's right when he was writing that book. Yep. I know, but look, you know, Firestorm, JLI. It's like uh, it's like my whole world's coming together. Okay. So his secret identity was Albert Gaines, and he lived in the suburbs of Motor City, which was basically the Squadron Supreme equivalent of Detroit. And he was this young worker at a local nuclear power plant, and he was accidentally exposed to radioactive waste products, which, you know, happens on the job all the time. And this gave him the ability to generate nuclear uh, energy and manipulate it for various uses. He could use it to fly, he could use it to shoot blasts, things like that. 
And he joined the Squadron Supreme, but he kept his identity a secret from his family, and he continued to live with them because, you know, typical teenage secret identity, you know, tropes, things like that. And now, when you get to the miniseries, which again was Squadron Supreme, 12 issue miniseries by Mark Gruenwald, uh, written by Mark Gruenwald, I should say, amazing. You guys, you gotta read it if you haven't. It's so freaking good. It's like Kingdom Come, even better. Without the Alex Ross art, sorry, but the story is much better. In this. Oh uh, my god. Have you not read Squadron Supreme recently versus Kingdom Come? I have. But uh, all right, just move on. Oh my I mean, Kingdom god. Come, there's no denying Kingdom Come is absolutely beautiful. But no, there's there's lots of papers documenting the similarities between these two stories. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, Kingdom Come in a lot of ways was ripped off of Squadron Supreme. It really was. It's the same story about heroes trying to make the world right and becoming, uh, trying to create a utopia and doing horrible things to the villains. I mean, it's there's a lot of parallels, man. There really is. So. See, I would think it's more like Watchmen than it is Kingdom Come, but okay. No, they're trying. They're not trying to change. They're not. They didn't take. In both cases, the heroes basically took control of the world and started dictating to the world how things are going to be. You know. Um, anyway, it's, that's probably a bigger discussion right. for another day. <laughs> this is supposed to be a sampler. Okay. So anyway, the, what happened is the world government has collapsed, right? Because the supervillain attacked, and the Squadron Supreme was mind controlled. Of course, the Squadron Supreme was mind-controlled. Anyway, uh, in this miniseries, the Squadron then assumes control of the U.S. government, the military, the police, everyone, uh, to implement this utopia program. They're trying to rebuild America into a peaceful union through social reform. Well, uh, about this time, Nuke's parents were hospitalized. I, that word that I can't say. They went in the hospital um, for treatment for cancer. And then you find out that it turns out that Nuke's body has just been producing more and more nuclear energy and radiation. And living in the house with his parents is actually killing them. So, uh, horrific, horrifying story there. So Tom Thumb, the equivalent of the atom, uh, creates a re- radiation containment suit for Nuke to stop any further leakage. But uh, he's also been tasked by Nuke to find a cure for cancer. So, unfortunately, Adam, did, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Tom Thumb didn't find it in time. Nuke's parents died, and Nuke becomes very despondent. And Dr. Spectrum, which is the, their version of Green Lantern, comes to find Nuke at his parents' grave, and Nuke goes nuts. Nuke has decided he's going to kill Tom Thumb for failing to, to cure cancer. And Dr. Spectrum has to stop him, and they fight. And Dr. Spectrum creates this, uh, you know, bubble. It's like a Green Lantern typical bubble. Creates a bubble around Nuke. Well, Nuke keeps blasting it with his energy and uses up all the oxygen inside the bubble and suffocates. Ah! And Nuke dies. Just so, like, wow. Oh my gosh. Really, really upsetting. So, uh, Rob, what do you think of Nuke's costume? At least this version, the containment suit. I actually like it because it's, it's so uh, function over form. I mean, really looks like a hazmat suit, which mm-hmm. I like. It looks like the kind of stuff you saw in like that movie, The China Syndrome. Okay. So I, I like I like that. Other than the superhero colors, you know, it's the red, red, blue, and yellow. Yeah. I, I like that it looks so much built for just function, which I appreciate because most superhero costumes are built to look fancy and they look they tend to look ridiculous. But this one looks just like a guy in a hazmat suit. So it's like cool. I appreciate that. And you know what the best uh, little thing about this, if you step back and look at it, he's got puffy sleeves. He does have puffy. That's true. He does <laughs> He's got puffy legs too, technically, but <laughs> because of the containment suit. But yeah, so uh, I love it. You know, you got as I said, you got the shot of him in the suit. He's got energy crack on. He's got his long hair. I think it's weird. Like when I look at him, I kind of see Firestorm. I know I'm probably seeing something that's not really there, but I see it. And then the bottom, you get an action shot of uh, Doctor Spectrum and Nuke fighting with that. So sad, the bubble that kills Nuke. But 
You know, if you got to have a, a an analog for Firestorm, I think Nuke's a pretty good one. You know, hot-headed teenager, energy power, you know, radiation powers. I think it works pretty well. Yeah, this one this one is I would say stands more as his own character mm-hmm. uh, than I'd say Amphibian. Amphibian is so clearly an Aquaman analog. This guy is like, okay, nuclear powers. And a lot of superheroes have that. So uh, to me, he he's a little more of his own thing, which is probably what he got is like such more of a deluxe listing than Amphibian. Amphibian was just basically an also ran, but Nuke, you know, they gave him some decent space here. Yeah, well, they gave him almost a whole issue in the uh, miniseries, which is another reason he gets a lot of the attention. And then the nice That's idea it. is, you know. It's, it's more like what would happen in the real world if somebody had atomic powers. And that's kind of where the focus was. Rather than, you know, he's going to create giant rubber ducks with shag gloves. No, he's going to create radiation which kills his parents. So, well, Robbie, you know, uh, do, you know what? Since the girl stepped in our turf, what would you say? Amphibian, hot or not? Uh, <laughs> I'd say hot ish. Okay. Nuke? Nuke, I, I guess with his flowing tresses, uh, the girls would probably like him. Although I, I'm always bad at guessing what it is. They're like, uh, he's skinny. He's 5'10", 150. So I think he's probably slowly dying of radiation as well. So I'd say not hot. Okay. Uh, I think he's probably hot with radiation. So you got to give him that. And I think Amphibian's sort of classically hot. So I, I think they're both hot. So. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for this Who's Who sampler. Uh, folks, thanks for listening. Please check out the Who's Who podcast where we actually go through the Who's Who comics and talk about each one of the entries and the art and all of that. And you actually find out who the artists are because Who's Who's infinitely better than the Marvel Universe handbook. Uh, I guess that's it. Until next time, who's, who's next? next? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Oh my. This, this is, I must notify my Lord Manga right away. Uh, pardon the intrusion, my Lord. What is it, Elron? My loyal servant, secretary, infomercial MC, and lackey. Uh, do you remember when the Corbalian cargo cruiser driver hauling the Imskin peanut butter accidentally collided with the Karjian cargo ship filled with Bismolian chocolate? Yes? Which then knocked said cargo ship into the Rawl delivery shuttle carrying red diaphyse enamel, causing it to collide into the orbital storage tank over Graxius IV filled with blue Naltorian paint? Yes, Elron. I recall the Rawl shuttle crew was marooned on that orbital tank for some time. Your cunning wit is impeccable, my lord. That maroon joke is still hilarious the 47th time... Get to the point, Elrond! Well, it appears that some of the podcast product content from Earth may have... settled a bit during intergalactronic shipping. We had just experienced an amalgamation of the Ohatmu or Not and Who's Who podcasts. And? Well, it may be an inaccurate representation of what we are selling... And the potential customer service requirements are... Zero! We are the cluster! We do not know the meaning of the words customer service! Well, we, we do know the meaning of the words customer service, of course. They simply have no context in our operations. Of course, my lord. This is a free sample, Elron. Just slap a label on everything that says final product may differ from display and carry on. We do not want to jump the gun and declare another Velveeta incident, do we? Uh, yes, sir. I mean, no, sir. My lord, sir.
This next segment features two similar yet unique individuals that have been featured on different programs on the Fire and Water Podcast Network, and yet they had never met face to face until now. In this exclusive audio footage from the cluster, we feature the first encounter between two beings of number level intelligence. Number level intelligence? What the noughts is this? Oh, I am just receiving word that the intelligence level of these earthen beings was still being calculated at the time of this broadcast. And I am now receiving a data card that states that... Incredible! These beings are of a tenth level intelligence. Given that the average human on Earth is of a sixth level intellect, this segment should be truly enlightening. No, the most important segment you may hear in your entire span of existence. And you are hearing it here first, right now. Ah! Solomon Grande, a member of Legion of Doom. Living Dark Beta Head in swamp with Robot Man with no pants and talking Monkey Man. No, Solomon Grande, member of Legion of Zoom and co-host of Little Professor Man's One and Done Wonder Show podcast with Cowboy Man and Chisel Face Man and Lamo Computer. No, Solomon Grundy not. Wait, why Solomon Grundy's voice say something different when it echo? Wait, why does Solomon Grundy's voice say something different when it echo? That much better. But now why Solomon Grundy see himself when there ain't no mirror about? Solomon Grundy thought Solomon Grundy was handsomest one there is. Wait, if you Grundy, but not Grundy. And if you Grundy, but not Grundy. Then, then other Grundy, Grundy must be. Other Grundy! Grundy finally meet other Grundy. It happened, it happened. And this time it ain't flying man tricking Grundy by. Wait. Other Grundy ain't flying man pretending to be other Grundy to trick Grundy, ain't ya? Solomon Grundy hate flying man! Ha! I knew it. Now Grundy and other Grundy be friends. Grundy and other Grundy should make podcast show together to celebrate first meeting. Grundy like other Grundy's idea. But what kind of show should Grundy and other Grundy do? Grundy have idea. Thinking about great TV shows Sinestro once showed him. On November 13th, Superfriend Solomon Grundy was asked to remove himself from the Chris Franklin residence. That request came from Chris Franklin's wife. Deep down, he knew she was right, but he also knew that someday he would return. With nowhere else to go, he appeared at the slaughter swamp shack of the pre-crisis Solomon Grundy. Several years earlier, DC Comics continuity had thrown him out, requesting that he never return. Can two banished swamp monsters share a shanty without driving each other crazy?
Grundy? Grundy home? What other Grundy mean? Grundy already home! <laughs> other Grundy? Look at place. Solomon Grundy thought he told other Grundy to clean up apartment shack. Solomon Grundy know what to be clean. Likes living messy. Solomon Grundy messiest one there is, so other Grundy should clean up. No Solomon Grundy messiest one there is, so other Grundy should clean up. <laughs> other Grundy, stop copying Grundy. No, other Grundy, stop copying Grundy. Why, you... I order. Solomon Grundy had better idea. Grundy thinking Grundy and other Grundy open own detective agency. Grundy's call it Solomon and Solomon. Other Grundy, look. Grundy see it, Other Grundy. Little insurance salesman is dead, all right. Letter opener sticking out of back, blocking Grundy's view. But Grundy sure little insurance man killed by poison. Solomon Grundy say little insurance man killed by shotgun. Poison. Shotgun. Why, you... I order. Grundy know, Grundy and other Grundy can make Creole cooking podcast shows. Welcome to Cooking Creole with Solomon Grundy and Solomon Grundy. Today, Grundy and other Grundy make Grundy and other Grundy's favorite, shrimp and grits. Here's what y'all need. Two pounds. Unpeeled raw shrimp, medium size. One four cup, vegetable oil. Grunde prefer canola. Avocado oil, okay too. One three cup, all-purpose flour. What other Grundy doing? Grundy giving listeners time to write down recipe. Grundy say that take too long. 
Listeners can use pause button on podcast player. Listeners can't press pause button if fingers on pencil writing down recipe. Why, you... I order! Solomon Grundy think other Grundy's idea is stupid. Grundy and other Grundy end up fighting. Yeah, well, Grundy say other Grundy's detective show idea is stupid. Grundy's fighting that one too. Oh, oh yeah? Well, other Grundy's oddball coupling idea was stupidest idea of all. Why you? I oughta. Mr. Grundy, we're getting ready to record our next podcast episode. Aw, but little professor man, Grundy and other Grundy was just starting to have fun. Yeah. Well, we'll make sure to plan for a longer play date next time, okay? Okay. Grundy have to go home now. Okay, other Grundy. Maybe Grundy see other Grundy at other Grundy's house. Okay, other Grundy. And next time, Grundy and other Grundys start with the fun part. Come on, Grundy. In a minute, cowboy man. I made waffles. Waffles? Bye, other Grundy. Grundy gotta go. Huh. Grundy miss other Grundy already. But other Grundys seem... Hey, Grundy! Cindy made chicken and waffles for dinner. You want some? Waffles? Oh boy! Let Grundy at them! A clarification. The data card was delivered to me in the opposite configuration. And the two creatures interchangeably designated as Solomon Grundy and Other Solomon Grundy actually possess a 0.1 level intellect and not a 10th level intellect as previously reported. Moving on, one of the creatures designated as Solomon Grundy, and occasionally other Solomon Grundy, is also one of the hosts of the Neophyte Fire and Water program known as the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show, item 60563. Hosted by the unabashedly conceited Professor Zoom Yukonori, and featuring a number of guest stars that were literally pulled off of the comic book page. The first season of five episodes began with the professor's introduction to his comic book fandom, and literally ended with the destruction of the universe. And yet here we are. And furthermore, in addition to offering the limited edition first season set, in your choice of Arl Bean Disc or 8-track tape, for just $99.99.99, you can also receive a feed of all new episodes in the upcoming Season 2 of the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show that takes place immediately after the destruction of the... Oh, just roll the clip. It began with the origin of his comic book fandom. This is the very first comic book I have ever read. 
and also ignited the spark of my comic book collecting over the course of a 1974 weekend. Professor Zoom Yukinori led an ongoing expedition through his favorite single-issue comic book stories from the Bronze Age of DC Comics. Balance of Power, Have Horse, Will Fly, Solomon Grundy, Wins on a Monday, Superman's Unbeatable Rival, Green Lantern, Master Criminal of the 25th Century. With unique celebrity guest perspectives in an ambitious attempt to set this program apart from other comic book review podcasts, Call me Terror Man. Solomon Grundy am co-host this time. I am Lanos, the, the lexical archive of minutia, expositions, expositions, and origins. Goodbye, me am Bizarro. I am Libra. This is Aya from the Green Lantern. It is I, the Reverse Flash. Which had ended with the destruction of the universe. Or... Has it? Why in Tunderation are we? I regret to say that you are my prisoner. Without our interspatial time conveyor, we are all essentially trapped here. Can't summon the willpower necessary for my power ring to pull me free. For nearly two decades, I had carried her ghost within my heart. Experience the wonder. Great wings of Mercury! <laughs> of an all-new season. Solomon Grundy, fat little pointy-eared man before. Let us get back to the story, shall we? Down, down, and approach. Of the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show. Only on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Allow me, Entity Terra Man. That does it. Ain't messing with no timelines ever again. What the g sternish was that? I mean, now what the g sternish was that, gendered and non gendered beings? Don't ask, just buy it. Only ninety nine, ninety nine, ninety nine. Up next. Podcasts that do not deal with Earth and comic books, and a special spotlight of the mighty hypernormal heroes that thwarted the Dominator invasion of Earth. Following this brief commercial break, yes, even our infomercials have commercials. Will the innovations of the cluster ever cease? In a word, don't count on it. In 2011, the irredeemable Shag and Aqua Rob Kelly teamed up to create the Fire and Water podcast. In 2016, they teamed up with Ryan Daly, the Franklins, and Siskoid to form the Fire and Water Podcast Network. A network built on teaming up needs a show about team-ups. Marvel team-up. Yes. The brave and the bold? You know it. Marvel 2-in-1. It's clobbering time. DC Comics presents... Of course. Supervillain team-up? Good idea. Youngblood X-Force? Mmm, technically. FW team-up, coming this summer, only from the Fire and Water Podcast Network.
Space. The Final Frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Gimme That Star Trek. Its ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Gimme That Star Trek. A new episode every month, only at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes. Welcome back to the FW Summer Sampler Super Spectacular. I am your host, Elron, the AI that ease you owe. Besides comic books, the Fire and Water Podcast Network also celebrates other unique earthen pastimes, such as the music created by the earthen countercultural American rabble rouser, Bob Dylan. In the program entitled Pod Dylan, item 52441, Dylan fanatic Rob Kelly dissects the work of this iconoclastic icon one song at a time. And in this special sampler segment, he and fellow podcaster Zoom Yukonoi uncover a rare connection between Bob Dylan and comic books. One guy that was home in the night was Batman. He was introduced in May of 1939 in Detective Comics number 27 by Bob Kane. I always loved Batman. The way I looked at it, you have to come from another planet to be Superman, but I could be Batman, and you know I tried. Bob Dylan and comic books uh, outside of the Fire and Water Podcast Network don't cross over a lot. Bob does mention comic books a couple times on his Theme Time Radio Hour show, uh, which was the clip you heard at the the start of this sampler. Uh, And he mentions, uh, the only mention of a comic book ever in all of his songs is in the song Yay, Heavy, and a Bottle of Bread, where he says, well, the, the comic book and me, just us, we caught the bus. That's pretty much the only time you're going to hear a reference to comic books in a Bob Dylan song. But uh, in pop culture, of course, comic books have taken on uh, Dylan in, in various guises, uh, probably none more directly than in the National Lampoon in October 1972 when they ran a story called The Ventures of Zimmerman, which was uh, written by Tony Hendra and Sean Kelly. If you're thinking you might be familiar with the name of Tony Hendra, he plays the manager Ian in Spinal Tap, so you can see him in that movie, and drawn by Neil Adams, no less. Uh, Zoom, can you believe Neil Adams drew this? No, originally. (laughs) I mean, what's interesting is that, you know, the main reason I, I actually have a copy of this is because it was illustrated by Neil Adams. It's extraordinary work by him because it's, it's a combination of his sort of photorealistic style, yet also cartoony and caricature It's uh, pretty remarkable. Yeah, it is. And, and, you know, I just happened across this at a secondhand bookshop in Kent in 1984. Uh, well, well, actually, I saw a copy of another one of his parodies he did with Dick Giordano called The Adventures of Dead Man. And that's when I discovered, wow, there's Neil Adams' artwork in National Lampoon. 
Yep. So I basically spent that whole Saturday afternoon just flipping through every single copy of National Lampoon that that bookstore, bookshop had. And, and um, when I came across one, I just kind of set it aside going, I'm going to buy this. And fortunately, the October 1972 issue with the Zimmerman comic was one of those one of those, um, one of those issues, but, but yeah, the, the artwork is very superb. Um, this was what, this was during when fans, what fans would call his prime era where it's very tight, very photo, photorealistic, but yes, it's a little bit of cartooning ish. Um, the earlier, the earlier age version of Bob Dylan is essentially like a boy with an adult Bob Dylan face <laughs> and head. <laughs> So it's a bit of a caricature there, which is interesting. And, and, but, but there's still some photorealism there because, you know, well, Mr. Adams stated in interviews that he would sometimes copy or even trace photographs when he was creating comic panels. And, and there are a few panels, uh, like on page five and on page eight, where it looks like he, he definitely took it from a photograph if he didn't just outright trace it. And it's amazing. This is just eight pages, by the way, eight, pa- eight story pages by Neil Adams. But there are three complete stories here. Right. This is a, a quasi parody of Bob Dylan's origins. For those of you who you know don't exactly remember or don't know what they were, he was a young man in, in Hibbing, born to sort of middle class parents, and he decides on his own to take a bus to New York and you know completely change his identity. But it also parodies basically the origin of Superman because yes. it's talking about you know it's sort of like put they basically put him on a bus and it's the rocket. Oh and he goes no, the no, they didn't put him on a bus. They mailed him by third class mail as an infant to Hibbing. Oh, that's right. His parents are on the bus. That's right. His I'm parents gonna... eventually followed as soon as they sold all of the stock of toasters that they had. That's right, yes. Yeah. <laughs> because they, they had to escape from the economically doomed town of Duluth, Minnesota. Right. So yes, they escaped it's... 40 miles away to Hibbing. Yes, Bob Dylan's parents, uh, his dad, Abraham, uh, ran a hardware store. Uh, and, that was, and that was something that uh, uh, Abraham wanted his son to follow in his footsteps. And of course, he's a young Bob Zimmerman had no interest in that. So for those of you too young to remember the National Lampoon and what it was as opposed to what it is now, now it's just pretty much an empty brand that they slap on the worst imaginable product out there. But in the 70s, it was a magazine, and it was Saturday Night Live before Saturday Night Live. It was the, a reaction to the counterculture of the 60s, and the writers and artists of the National Lampoon took it as a badge of honor to savage everything, even things <laughs> that they themselves liked. And so if you read these eight pages... Uh, it's simultaneously sort of complimentary to Bob Dylan. It's it's underscoring what a legendary figure he is by casting him in this sort of Superman-type framework. But it's also incredibly cynical. I mean, it really seems to regard Bob Dylan as a kind of a, a sellout and someone that just wrote songs to kind of latch onto the protest movement. And it, it the, the final panel, which is uh, Joan Baez, in silhouette, Joan Baez uh, servicing Bob Dylan in a way that we won't get into. Really, like, they were just, like, taking the piss out of everybody. And well, that yes, was sort it, of, that was the National Lampoon's kind of whole uh, modus operandi. Right, and that, that particular panel, which actually appears twice, really, but but that particular panel is, is, a, is a send-up of the Superman trope where Lois is with Clark going, oh, if only I could be with Superman. And Clark is like, well, if she only knew type of thing. But, of course, this was a scene that would never be shown in a Superman comic. No. <laughs> Not outside but, of a Howard Chaykin, maybe. Yeah, but but yes, the, the point of this particular parody comic, and this is something I actually was able to glean when I first got this in the 1980s, because, you know, as, as we had talked about back when I... Uh, when I guest starred on your show in episode 29, I'm, I'm not a diehard Bob Dylan fan. And 
but I was familiar with a number of his mainstream singles. So, uh, so I was able to kind of spot a number of song lyric jokes and things, but at least, you know, the, the send up of anti-establishment promoter, Bob Dylan, essentially selling out to the business establishment is the whole point of this. But I guess another thing we should say for somebody that's reading this now is there are a lot of offensive Jewish stereotypes in this yes. story. Yes, there are. Uh, I saw them as such when I viewed it in the 1980s. When I purchased this, it would definitely be viewed as offensive today. But in the early 1970s, while I don't want to say such anti-Semitic humor is the product of its day, even though it was, uh, but I view many of the National Lampoon satires as more making fun of those cliched stereotypes themselves rather than leaning on cliched stereotypes to make fun of certain people. But now, having said that, the point of this parody comic, again, is to essentially accuse, if not condemn, Mr. Dylan of selling out, as we had said. And the, re- the way this parody does it is by having Bob Dylan, you know, folk singer, uh, essentially have this secret identity as a shrewd, behind-the-scenes, stereotypical Jewish businessman known as Zimmerman, who is essentially a cleaned-up Bob Dylan with a suit and a briefcase and a luxury car, which is dubbed the Zimmermobile. And and he, 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 he wears a, a yarmulke as well, which could be seen as a symbol to visually represent that he's a conventional Jewish businessman conforming to authority, you know, as opposed to the anti-establishment of Bob Dylan. But it can also, you know, I, I'm seeing this parody as poking fun of Mr. Dylan by essentially using these cliched Jewish stereotypes as a means to do so. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's, it's a combo of, of savaging him, but also honoring him because, as you mentioned, like, this thing is littered with Dylan song lyrics. Oh, and, yes. And, and only a really diehard Dylan fan is going to catch all the references. And so, well, if you're, if you're sticking all these references in for the diehard fans, presumably the diehard fans like Bob Dylan, and they don't necessarily want to see him being made fun of. I mean, there's a panel here where he walks by a girl, and uh, they're all looking behind him, and he says, and he thinks to himself, don't look back. There's a yep. thing where he's writing song lyrics, and he thinks to himself, these tunes, I am a changing. <laughs> yes, his, and, and, his, and, and all the tunes that he's changing, if you look at all the books. They're all Woody Guthrie, yeah. They're all, yes. <laughs> <laughs> his parents yelled at him. They say, you're no good. It's all over now, baby. And he says, it's all right, Ma. Uh, yep. There's a point where a parking meter explodes. Uh, Gotta watch those parking meters. And watch even those earlier. parking meters. Yeah, which which was set by the weatherman, and and even one of the weathermen is like Joker calling thief, you know. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, as as Bob Dylan is dodging some of the explosions, there must be some way out of here. Yeah. Oh, and uh, and real clever one was listen, businessman, that's my wine you're drinking. Yes, yes, from businessman they drink my wine. Yeah, they really it's it's and they managed to get in uh, Dylan's non-appearance at Woodstock, where they make fun of the hippie. National Lampoon love making fun of hippies. Yes. Uh, they just yes, love it. And so you've got this whole scene of all the hippies in the rain complaining that Dylan is not at Woodstock. Because, uh, I mean, uh, for those who don't know, uh, Woodstock was placed in Woodstock partly because they figured that would get Dylan to show up because he lived in Woodstock at the time. And nevertheless, he did not show up. But you've got this panel of all these people going, where's Dylan? Where's Dylan? And they're like 20 panels of that, uh, word balloons yep. of them going, where's Dylan? Where's Dylan? So it's, it's an interesting curio uh, to look at this and to sort of see someone, you're, as, as a comic book fan, you're so familiar with the style. Neil Adams is just like one of the comic book icons of all time. 
drawing something like this. It's really pretty startling. And this is not the only one that they did. They actually did a sequel called The Son of God Meets Zimmerman in 1974, yeah. uh, which actually is sort of funny because it talks about Bob Dylan and religion, and this is years before he would become a born-again Christian, but nevertheless, they were a little ahead of the curve here. But yeah, Ventures right. of Zimmerman, it's an interesting thing to find. You can find it online. You can find the whole story. If you're a Dylan fan and you haven't read it, I would I would give it Give it a glance because it's it's just really uh, quite amazing, and I'd love to know if Dylan ever saw it or heard about it. You know, I don't know either, but you know, just just for the Neil Adams artwork alone and the sight gags, it's definitely worth the price of admission, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting combo of again, you know, if you want to take two different industries, the comic book industry and the music industry, Bob Dylan and Neil Adams. That's just not those are two names you just don't ever hear crossover very much. So yeah, the ventures of Simmerman, it's uh it's uh quite uh, interesting, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> that was a sample of Rob Kelly's Pod Dylan. Available for you from the cluster at the anti-established low price of $99.99.99. Another earthen pastime that is not a comic book involves a celluloid optical illusion referred to as a motion picture, or movie for short. And in the highly acclaimed Film and Water podcast, item 01888, the podcast host with too much time on his hands, Rob Kelly, with a rotating cast of guests, evaluates movies that are considered old and not so old. Here's a tease of a film to be spotlighted on this podcast in the eventual future. So on the Film and Water podcast, uh, we normally talk about whole movies. Uh, sometimes we do movie-related topics. But for this sampler, we're here to talk about just a trailer. And now, I don't know about you, Ryan, but like most of the trailers that I think about as like being particularly memorable are like the big tentpole movies. You know, like mm-hmm. the Star Wars trailer, uh, you know, Superman or Batman v. Batman v. Superman or the Avengers. I mean, something that you know is coming. And it's like, oh, it's a big – the trailer drops on this day. The trailer drops at 9 a.m. Most of the trailers, most of the big trailer memories I have are, are related to those kinds of movies. This one, though, the trailer for Lost in Translation, starring Bill Murray and my past and future girlfriend, Scarlett Johansson. This this is an exception to that because I remember seeing this trailer in an art house that is uh, still around. It's I don't even know the name of it. It's changed hands so many times. But I remember – I had no idea this movie was coming because this, this came out in 2003 and yeah. the internet – you know, the internet was still was, was around, obviously, but the whole notion of like, I wasn't plugged into like the movie world at that point, or, or I was just getting into it. So I didn't have a lot of foreknowledge about movies coming out. So I had no idea this was a movie until I saw this trailer. And I was so excited because it's like Bill Murray was back. You know, he had done Rushmore. He was in the Royal Tenenbaums. Like, mm-hmm. I was so happy. He's my, one of my favorite performers of all time. I grew up with this guy. So I was just so excited that, like, Bill Murray was the lead in this movie. And it just looked really exciting. What Do you remember when you saw this trailer? Is, is that a memory for you? I, I don't remember when I saw the trailer, but I must have because this was, like, one of the – when I was, this came out when I was in college. And I didn't see a whole lot of movies when I was in college, like, during the, the school year because I was always busy with other things. But I do remember making the effort to go and see this one in a small theater in the mall. So I had to have seen this trailer. Um, and, and yeah, just kind of like thinking along the same lines of like, I was like, oh, yeah, Bill Murray, like he, he seemed to have been gone for a long time. 
Um, but I love the Royal Tenenbaums, one of my favorite movies. Um, and I knew about him from Rushmore too. And so I just, yeah, this felt like he, there was this resurgence of Bill Murray. Didn't really know. I think I had seen her in other stuff, but didn't really know Scarlett Johansson at the time. I think this was the one that really kind of put her on the map. Um, because by the time she landed the Black Widow role, I, I was like, okay, yeah, I know exactly what that was. But yeah, she really makes an impression in this one. Um, but yeah, in terms of the trailer, I just remember kind of thinking, yeah, yeah, it was, that, was, that was a fun one. This this looks like it's going to be a good, interesting movie. And they, you know, like in, in college, this was the type of movie that I was really looking for because we hadn't gotten to the golden age of you know comic book movie or depending on your mileage, we, we were, weren't there weren't a whole lot of big tentpole movies that I was seeking at that time right. in the early two thousands. So yeah, I, I if I had seen this trailer, I definitely would have been gunning for this movie which i must have because i did seek this one out yeah. yeah i mean i admit that this movie this trailer it as a lot of trailers do doesn't exactly sell the tone of the movie if you if you watch the trailer it's very high energy it manages to show the one scene of bill murray doing something silly where he's on the treadmill and it's like mm-hmm. out of control so it makes it look a little more wacky than yeah. it is but of course that's the way trailers work this this movie is actually much more meditative and slow and much more of a drama and we haven't gotten it gotten to it yet on film and i want to because it's one of my all-time favorite movies um weirdly enough i can sort of remember what movie i might have seen it in front of because I, I remember what movies i saw i have a list i know i keep a list it's ridiculous was it one of the and, kill bill movies because those were the only other ones that i think i saw at that same theater the movies that i saw in this theater and it, it, i can limit it down to a couple it probably was either winged migration that bird documentary <laughs> uh american splendor comic book movie with paul giamatti uh, as harvey picar or mm-hmm. masked and anonymous the bob dylan movie where he saw oh, where <laughs> bob dylan and jeff bridges and john goodman are in, this was one of those three movies i saw in front of and like i said i remember just being so excited and one thing that I am like, you want to get a hair trigger response out of me in a positive way is use Elvis Costello's cover of <laughs> What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding. I love that song. It is probably yeah. my favorite of his songs, even though I know he didn't write it. But it's I find that performance just so energetic. I run to it. When I when I go for a jog and I, that song comes up on my playlist, I run faster because it's just so high energy. So anytime you use that in a in a movie trailer, I'm like on board. You know, I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, man, yeah, this looks cool. And then they marry it to a shot of Bob and Charlotte uh, running in. I think it's like a laundromat or something. And it just looks so exciting. And so every time I watch this trailer, even though I know the movie is not the movie this trailer is selling me, I still just get excited all over again. I just think it's a really great trailer. I love the idea of Bill Murray again being the just kind of this two-hander with him and Scarlett Johansson, which I thought was an, an interesting combination. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, I think this is just a terrific trailer and written directed by Sofia Coppola. I'm like, wow, that's interesting. Like he's kind of handing mm-hmm. himself over. You know, the, Bill Murray was fully in his auteur phase where he was just handing himself over to the Wes Andersons of the world. Those guys, it was just like, okay, I'm going to stop doing these kind of big studio things and just, I'm going to become everybody's art house avatar. And it, <laughs> and it worked out because of Bob, yeah, got a, yeah, Bill got a Oscar nomination from this movie. Yeah. Yeah. I, I getting back to the song. I, yeah, I love that song too. It's, it's not my favorite uh, Elvis Costello one, but it's pretty high up there. Um, but yeah, I, I used to sing that song to my baby. I would sing what's so funny about Reese <laughs> love and understanding. <laughs> Um, and, and yeah, it's it's one of the two songs like because this movie does have a really good soundtrack, and that's one of the two two songs that the trailer features. The other one is uh, uh, "Just Like Honey" by the Jesus and Mary Chain, which oh, is the song at the very end of the movie. Oh, um, beautiful! Um, but yeah, no, it's really good, and I, I like the way it. You're right; it does kind of sell a little bit more 
a sense of wackiness and yeah. just kind of like the notes that plays, especially like the, the trailer is bookended by scenes of Bill Murray's character, obviously not getting the Japanese language. Cause at first he's, he's filming a, a, a commercial for a Centauri a time. Whiskey. Centauri. Yeah. He's filming this commercial and the director starts like giving him all of these like instructions in Japanese and the translator is like, just more intensity. And he's like, is, is that what he said? I think he said more. Uh, and then at the end, the, the last shot is when he's in the waiting room at the hospital and a guy's making this sort of circular gesture and Bill Murray's trying to imitate it and figure out what he's saying. And the guy just starts laughing and he's like, okay, so yeah, it, it sells it. But yeah, the, the, the playful tone of the trailer is indicative of a few spots within the movie, but yeah, overall that's not that the tone of the movie is a lot more meditative, a lot more, I don't want to say somber, although that it, there is certainly parts of it, but it's just, it's a quiet movie. Yes, it is. It's a, it's a quiet personal movie about two, two people finding each other in a, in a way that goes against expectations. So right. I think, yeah, I, I did like that. And I, the movie surprised me after I saw the trailer. It hints at um, the melancholy and the final scene we see in this trailer. Uh, and it's that shot in the hallway of Bob and Charlotte sitting on that bench. And Charlotte has that pink wig on mm-hmm. with, the, with the bangs. And she just gently puts her head on his shoulder and then he folds his hands like he just looks content. And I that's one of my favorite shots in the movie. And I love that they hint at that. It's you're giving that little bit of like that's that's what this movie is. And then it fades to black and we get the credit. So it's like if you don't know yeah, obviously you're watching the trail, you don't know what that scene is. But when you've seen the movie, you're like, oh, okay, that's actually a really nice, quiet little moment. And that's one of the reasons I love that movie, which we will discuss on the show at some point because it's filled with these great, quiet little moments. So it's this, this trailer stands unique. It's one of the few trailers that's not a franchise movie that I just got super excited to see. And that's what trailers are supposed to do. You know, they're supposed to introduce you to something and go, oh, man, I can't wait to see that. And I saw this movie like the weekend it came out. I was just so jazzed. So I think it's a really great trailer. And I said, you can go check it out on YouTube. In this next segment, witness the ever-ubiquitous Rob Kelly sadistically subject his inamorata, designated as Darlin' Tracy, to the cinematic horror of what the Earthens refer to as horror movies. It is all in the Film & Water podcast feature charmingly known as Turn It Off With Tracy, item 05717. How far will Darlin Tracy view each terrifying thriller before she demands Rob Kelly to turn off the view screen? Find out with each spine-chilling episode. Following is but a small sample of Rob's cruel and unusual punishment. Okay, for this uh, special little sampler uh, we're doing of Turn It Off with Tracy, which is part of the Film and Water podcast, I thought I would show you... Uh, trailers, two trailers for movies that you will never see <laughs> because there is no way you're going to be able to sit through uh, these two movies. The first off, uh, first one is the remake of Suspiria, which is an originally an Italian horror movie, and this is a remake of that. As you can see, it had Dakota Johnson, uh, Melanie Griffith's daughter. That was the girl. Oh, I didn't even recognize her. And Tilda Swinton. Now, the original is a classic. And so a lot of people are like, really, you're going to remake it? But this one looks completely different in terms of style than the one from the 70s. Mm -hmm. So, you know, why not? I don't have a problem if you can update it and do a different thing with it as opposed to just remaking it. So what did you think of – I mean, I know it looked suitably scary, but – Yeah, it looked like it had a lot of creepy things and, you know, many, many reasons I would never watch it. Right. thought the graphics were really nice. 
the type oh. the, the tr- logo treatment you mean yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. with the last little letters coming up s u s p i r a well and then the the then poster the, yeah. logo mm-hmm. at the end yeah and that's about all i can say <laughs> the <laughs> thing that it tells you nothing about the plot just a lot of creepy things. A lot of creepy images. People who people who look like zombies or something, or they didn't do anything. They're just there, and you know that something's wrong. You said from the beginning, like, oh, the music. You're like, yeah, oh, yeah, The music no. is telling me this is a movie I'm never going to watch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm literally looking forward to, to it. Uh, it's it's made by the guy that did Call Me you By... Have fun. Yes, I will. Uh, it's made by the guy who did Call Me By Your Name, the, that movie about the, the did I see that no we want to again I'm in it for an Oscar about the the young boy not the young boy but the young man and the older man that have the, the relationship out in Italy so it's like this is not a guy that makes horror movies and he's making this ambitious remake of Suspiria so but yeah it looked uh, it looks cool I'm on board with it I'm excited so uh, and then the other one was the 20 uh well no not 20 good lord the 40 years later sequel to Halloween. And I do want to give you a little bit of backstory to that because there have been like 19 Halloween movies. I only saw one. And there's only, you saw half of the first half one. one. The, all the other horror Halloween movies are shit. They're just garbage. Okay. Um, Jamie Lee Curtis did two more of them. Number mm-hmm. two. Hold on. Let me take that back. Halloween 3 mm-hmm. has nothing to do with Michael Myers. It's a completely different, unrelated story, which is actually a fun movie, but the rest are terrible. Okay. But they managed to talk Jamie Lee Curtis back into this. And as you can see, she's like old lady Laurie Strode now, and she's mm-hmm. been waiting her whole life. And that line of dialogue where the one kid says, isn't that her brother? Mm-hmm. And she's like, no, that was some that was something somebody made up. So they are completely disregarding all the previous movies except oh, the first one. This is a direct sequel to the first Halloween. Okay. And they are pretending that Halloween's two through ten never happened, which is I think is a good idea because those movies are <laughs> just terrible. Uh-huh. I was a little skeptical about this because I was just like, can they possibly make this scary again? And they could. I watched this at work, and I was still like, oh, my God, this is friggin' creepy. The trailer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is. You, This one had a genuine jump scare for you, even though they telegraphed what was coming. I, how many times do I have to tell you the telegraphing makes it worse? The only way that I cannot jump or scream is to stop watching. Right. Closet door, bump. Closet door, bump. As soon bump. as I saw a closet door, I oh, boy. Yeah, cause the door, can't close, cause the door, can't close, open the door, Michael Myers! Who in, uh, who's acting in a Halloween movie and can't close the closet door and looks inside? Yeah, especially if you know there's like a serial killer running around. Well, we don't know the context of it. I love, I was telling, I was talking to uh, Dan, Dan Colon about this, because he, oh. he, we were at work on Friday and we knew they were releasing the trailer. And as soon as they did, he sent me a link and I'm like, oh my God, I got to watch it. And I love the weird checkerboard floor of yeah. the mental institution. Yeah. Like, why would they build it to look like that? It's just, it's just a weird detail. If you're not already mental, that floor can make you mental. Yeah. And, uh, and I was saying to, to Dan that despite, despite there being like nine terrible Halloween movies, that mask still has some level of power. Cause when he pulls it out of the thing and pulls it up to the frame, mm-hmm. it's really scary and weird. Why is the dog upset? I think the dog sense is evil. Oh, There's some evil okay. going on. So, and I love the idea that Laurie Strode has been waiting her whole life. Like she's like, he's gonna get out. He's gonna train. So she's training. I love and you I see like that she, dummy with all the knife marks in it. And shit. She's badass, Laurie. Yeah, Strode. she's badass, Laurie Strode. So, yeah, you jumped out of your skin at that. Yes, at I did. The, uh, 
at the closet. Yeah, like I said, you didn't make it through the first Halloween, so there's no way we're going to see this one. Nope. But uh, but they were both pretty scary trailers, though, right? They were very scary trailers. Right. Especially you, Halloween. Especially Halloween. If you are a fan of, you know, getting the living daylight scared out of you, judging by the trailer, I would say you're going to love the living daylights out of this. There you go. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I'm very excited mm. about both these movies. It's it's. You have a good time watching. I'm going to. I'm genuinely <laughs> excited over both of these, especially Halloween, because it. I went into Halloween with n- no expectations that this would be any good. I think Frankie and might yet, have a word to say. About I know Frankie. The, <laughs> Frankie the cat is sitting here as we're recording this. So, so I, that's just going to do it. We said we just wanted to have a couple of minutes for this sampler to explain to people who haven't maybe heard the show that this is you trying to get through various horror movies <laughs> or. Trailers. Or even trailers. <laughs> you got through the whole trailer, though, for both movies, so there's that. Yeah, the Halloween one, really, like, you know, I didn't I didn't have time, really, to, to think, well, I think I want to turn this off, but, you know. Right, it's only two and a half Had I been minutes. reminded, <laughs> I definitely would have turned it off. <laughs> uses that great John Carpenter music, that, 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 which is just, like, the Very feeling of being pursued. Yeah. So, well, all right, that's Halloween and Suspiria. They come out in, like... Two movies I'm never going to watch. Right. There you go. Like I said, well, I'm going to go see them. So anyway, uh, that's going to do it for uh, Turn It Off with uh, Tracy for now. So uh, like I said, enjoy the only footage from those two movies you're ever going to see. And I didn't even enjoy them. (laughs) (laughs) Yet again. The Horror. Remember, Sentience. Turn It Off with Tracy comes as part of the Film and Water podcast, item 01888, which includes a special segment in which the demented Rob Kelly tortures Tracy with the original production of Suspiria for the additional price of 99.99.99. Clustercast intergalactronic charges will definitely apply. And now, a segment that is dear to everyone's hearts. Or Nexi, for the Trontians among our listeners. It features a spotlight on the key hypernormal heroes of Earth that had fended off the Dominion attack to their homeworld, the Justice League. In the effervescent Jilly, er, J-L-I, Bwahaha podcast, item 20587, that self-described irredeemable and shaggy humanoid fellow, the irredeemable shag, along with a bevy of interchanging podcasting guests, chronicle each adventure of these incredible hypernormals one comic book segment at a time. And this special sampler segment has a special spotlight on the Justice League member designated as Mr. Miracle. Elrond, you dare speak that infernal name? My lord? Do you not recall the unforgettable time that I had almost disremembered? when we thought we could use that particular Justice League to open trade with the dreaded Apocalypse and the... the... apocalyptic disaster that followed? You mean the events that occurred in the pages of Justice League International, Volume 1, Issues 15 through 21? Why, no sir, I do not... You dare re-etch that entire incident in my mind by uttering the accursed name of... Cluster Serial? Cluster Serial? Indeed. Indeed? Indeed. I was talking about Cluster Serial. The crisp and fluffy round niche spheres that bond together in milk? Part of a balanced breakfast, provided that you include an ultra-concentrated protein source? Oh, I must have misheard you. Sorry about that. 
Carry on, Elrond. Oh, yes, sir, indeed. Indeed. Phew. I got out of that sphere-breaking incident scot-free. Elrond! Oop. This mini-episode, Mr. Miracle's Special Number One, cover dated 1987. Hello, and welcome to this sampler special of Justice League International Wahaha Podcast, a monthly podcast celebrating the Keith Giffen and J.M. DiMatteis era of the Justice League by covering each and every issue. My name's the Irredeemable Shag, and I'm your host, but guess what? I brought along a friend. In fact, each episode, I invite a different guest host to help me tackle an issue of the JLI, or in this case, a comic related to the JLI. My co-host today is a past guest of this show, a fellow member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, and the less attractive co-host of the JLU cast. Folks, please help me welcome Mr. Chris Franklin. Welcome to the Embassy, Chris. Thanks for being here. Oh, it's, you've done some nice stuff to the Embassy since I've been. Well, you didn't even really have a full-blown Embassy when I was here because it was pre-international, so exactly it's, it's right. nice. Exactly. You wait yeah. You wait just a few more months when we uh, launch the Justice League Europe book. We're going to have a Paris room. You know, it's going to be fantastic. You should come back and check it out then. Oh, cool. I will. Yeah. Thanks. Well, Chris has done me a big solid here by coming by to help me cover not an issue of the JLI, but an issue very much related to the JLI. We're going to be talking about the Mr. Miracle special number one, which came out in 1987, just before the JLI book. And the reason why it's so important is because this particular book is actually why Mr. Miracle was placed in the JLI. Not in like the comic book sense, why, you know, why they recruited him, but in the real world sense. And uh, this came from an article in Amazing Heroes number 116, which was published in May 1987, which by the way, huge, huge thanks to Michelle Fife for sending me a copy of this. So the article is an interview with Keith Giffen, and it talks about how the Justice League was made up, some of the background of the series. And one of the things that comes up is how the characters join the book. And the big thing is, you know, for the most part, the characters in the JLI first came together in Legends number six, right? Right. So where is Mr. Miracle? He's not in Legends number six, and yet he's in Justice League number one. It's a question that we've been asking since the beginning of the series. We still don't have an answer in the continuity of the comics. But outside of that, the answer is that uh, Keith Giffen had to scramble around. Now, this is a quote. I had to scramble around to try and figure out where they came in. He means Mr. Miracle and Oberon. Giffen says that Bob Greenberger offered him Mr. Miracle because of the special, the book we're going to cover, and they wanted to keep him visible. So that's actually why Mr. Miracle got put into the JLI was because of this book we're about to talk about. And this book is a heck of a lot of fun. And it really, it's very, it, it almost feels in the spirit of the JLI. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I would agree. And, and in fact, I always thought it was that third Superpowers miniseries is how he got in. But, you know, it's... <laughs> We do not speak of the third Superpowers miniseries, Chris. <laughs> All right, well, up next, we're going to do another abbreviated segment that we like to do on our show, something I like to call... Monitor Duty. This is normally where we talk about comics that were on the shelves the same month as this JLI issue that features JLI members. Well, uh, in this case, this was on sale January 29th, 1987. Thanks to Mike's Amazing World of Comics for that information. And there were two relevant titles that I felt like were worth talking about that are tied to the Justice League. Specifically, Justice League of America, number 261 by J.M. DiMatteis and Luke McDonald. Do you remember this issue by chance, Chris? Oh, yeah, the mercy killing of the Justice League Detroit. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. <laughs> 
be more specific, <laughs> it is the last issue. So that four issues was just mowing through the characters, right? But this mm, was yeah. the last one. This is the final issue of the original classic Justice League of America series. Rob Kelly probably, probably cried himself to sleep the night he bought that comic. Uh, and, and this was the end, you know, of Justice League. The same month on the shelves was Legends number six by John Ostrander, Len Wein, John Byrne, and Carl Kessel. And of course, that is the conclusion to the amazing Legends miniseries. And it sets up the formation of the new Justice League, which then goes on, obviously, to become our beloved Justice League International. Mm-hmm. This Mr. Miracle special came out exactly one month before Justice League number one. It's the perfect setup. It's the perfect segue into the series, especially for someone who didn't know who Mr. Miracle was. Because, you know, for the most part, other than, you know, an occasional DC Comics Presents appearance, Mr. Miracle and gang hadn't appeared in comics in almost 10 years. I mean, after their their his ongoing series ended and he appeared in the Justice League, they just kind of vanished. Yeah, I would like to know one day the actual, I know Kirby was involved in the toy designs for the superpowers. I would like to know at what point, who was it that said, hey, what about all those fourth world characters you got? Because they really had like almost no visibility, but yet they became part of the toy line, the cartoon. And I know Mr. Miracle and Orion and those guys didn't make it in the cartoon, but they did make it into the toy line. And so that gave them like a new life, you know, and I think that's I mean, I really do think the superpowers toy line is one reason why Mr. Miracle got a special here and why he got into the JLI. So, oh, yeah, if it but. weren't for Darkseid and gang being in the superpowers cartoon, I don't know. They would have brought the rest of the heroes over with it. I mean, you know, uh, right. some, somewhere there was a pitch meeting where Frank Welker went, I want to talk like this. And they said, well, the DC <laughs> Universe talks like that. Dark side. That's how we're, that's where we're going with that. So. He just didn't get enough of doing that as Dr. Claw and Inspector Gadget. Exactly! (laughs) Exactly! All right, well, why don't we dive into this, folks? Again, Mr. Miracle special number one from DC Comics, cover dated 1987. Cover price $1.25. Ouch! That's pretty expensive back then. However, it was 40 pages, and the cover is by, oh gosh, who did this cover? Oh, somebody, some hack, somebody I've never heard of named Steve Rude? Who's that guy? Steve the Dude Rude. I know. Did that cover. So exciting! (laughs) Why don't you tell the folks at home about the cover? Okay, under a very 80s banner that reads specials in a very 80s font. We have an image of a brick wall with a circus poster pasted up to it. The poster heralds the death-defying acts of Mr. Miracle as we see the world's greatest escape artist, sorry Batman, freeing himself from the shackles of some strange tower above the big top of a circus. He's leaping toward us from the flames. Smaller vignettes advertise Oberon's acrobatics and juggling skills and Barda's great strength. Around the corner of the brick wall lurks the foreboding form of Darkseid. So it's really awesome. <laughs> so I think this thing's gorgeous. I mean, Steve Rude, I mean, he is such an amazing artist. Beautiful stuff. We're going to spend a lot more time talking about it in a minute. But I love the, the poster idea, the circus poster, you know, the Darkseid mm-hmm. hiding around the corner. That's really, I think, the most effective pieces of it. What, what Now, you have an artistic background. You're a designer. You have you, you have the talents. You have the skills. What what jumps out of you? Well, I think the fact that he sells the, the central thrust of the story he tells us everything you need to know about the cast, you know, in that poster image. And then yet you get this this wonderful image of Darkseid lurking and coming out of the shadows. And so, you know, kids, any kid who's watched a cartoon in the past few years knows who that guy is. Oh, there's Darkseid. Mm-hmm. So having him on the covers also, you know, he's as big or bigger than Mr. Miracle. 
but he, he even works the Mr. Miracle, the classic Kirby logo into the, the poster. Uh, so, I mean, in, in, in like we're going to see it inside, he's channeling Kirby without aping Kirby. Mm-hmm. The only thing that slightly throws it off a little bit is that very 80s special banner up top, but at least it blends in with the wall, so it's not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> it really doesn't bother me, but I'm retro, I guess. Yeah, I mean, he really captured that Kirby. Like, if you look at Mr. Miracle's face, that looks like a Kirby drawing. It just, it's, mm-hmm. wow. All right, it's gorgeous. But why don't, why don't we dig in here, because we want to keep this moving. So, inside, once you open it up, folks, the writer is Mark Evanier, penciler Steve Rude, inkers Mike W. Royer, letters Todd Klein, colors is Anthony Tolan, and editors are Richard Bruning and Robert Greenberger. And the title of the story inside is No Escape from Destiny. Why don't you start us off? Okay, the comic opens with our hero, Mr. Miracle, trying to break free from one of his death-defying traps, specifically being locked in a safe that is dropped from an airplane. His wife, Big Barda, is not remotely happy about his situation, as she doesn't want to watch her husband risk his life needlessly. However, Scott and Oberon love the excitement of these escapes and are having a hard time giving it up. After all, life in the suburbs can't compare to the thrill of adventure. After the stunt, we're treated to an appearance of Scott's former manager and all-around sleazeball, Funky Flashman. (laughs) Flashman wants to rekindle their partnership, but Barda runs him off by threatening him with a boulder. (laughs) Then after an argument between Mr. Miracle and Barda about the unnecessary risk of death-defying stunts, Scott agrees to no more escapes in the ultimate example of happy wife, happy life. Kind of the the story story of your life right there, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if that was true, she wouldn't be podcasting probably, so, you know. Uh, Unfortunately, suburban tranquility isn't in the cards for Scott and Barda as Calabac and minions of Darkseid attack their home. Darkseid's attack is part of his larger plan to make the people of Earth turn their backs on the superheroes of the world. Echoes of legends here. With the battle over, Scott and Barda are left with a huge hole in their roof and no money to pay for repairs. Elsewhere, Oberon finds himself a job at a circus where he recruits Scott and Barter as well. They could use the cash for home repairs, and it puts Scott back in the limelight. The circus had fallen upon hard times, but rebounds with such acts as Mr. Miracle's daring escapes and Barter's feats of strength. Now, as you would expect, everything begins to go wrong. Darkseid recruits Funky Flashman and tricks Scott into another death-defying escape for network television. Grading goodness is behind this scheme. It designs an elaborate and deadly series of traps as sort of an obstacle course for Scott. To make matters worse, Granny kidnaps Big Barda in order to ensure Scott tackles the trap. The plan is to have Mr. Miracle die on TV so the whole world will have its faith in superheroes shaken. As you would expect, Mr. Miracle escapes the trap, saves Barda, and together they take down Granny Goodness and her minions. Then things get even more dangerous when Darkseid himself arrives. The circus folk all line up between Mr. Miracle and Darkseid. They insist Darkseid will have to kill them first before they'll let him get to Mr. Miracle. Scott then gives a passionate speech about how if Darkseid just keeps killing everyone, someday he'll be the only person left in existence. Darkseid then vanishes in a huff with our heroes winning the day. Scott, Barda, and Oberon walk off together, promising to build a new home together, and Barda exclaims that she's beginning to understand why Scott keeps risking his life. She doesn't like it, but she can live with it. Oof, all right. So what do you think of this issue, buddy? Oh, I, I think it's great. And I actually looked for this book for years. I saw it advertised somewhere. I don't remember where, but I, I remember seeing it advertised, but I could never find it. I, again, dread a newsstand distribution. Uh, I think I finally got it at a Comic Con within the last 10 years or so, and I thought it was great. It's 
It's a great, it's a great, it's like the, if you got to read one Mr. Miracle story, then you read this issue. I think that's pretty much it. I think it's fair to say, I mean, Mark Evanier and Scott Rude specifically designed it as an homage to Jack Kirby. So it really does. It, it's a great fit for that character. Yeah, I definitely think so. And they got even got Mike Royer, who was uh, Kirby's inker. Mm. Back in the day, and to to come in and and Kirby it up even more. So yeah, it's and it it, it kind of reminded me uh, to tie into my show JLU Cast, which we'll eventually get to this episode. It reminded me of the Mister Miracle centric episode of JLU uh, because you've got the flashback with with Scott thinking about his time in in Granny Goodness's orphanage, and and yes, the whole time I read this, I could hear Ed Adner's Ed Asner's voice as Granny Goodness. Right, right. <laughs> But yeah, it, it's 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 great. I mean, I, I just I love it. It's fantastic. So with Darkseid's plan to make the world turn their back on superheroes, shouldn't this have been like a Legends tie-in? I, I think this definitely should have been a Legends tie-in. It seems to make perfect sense. And I would guess that Mark Evanier was even asked to work the d- discredit heroes angle into this story. Someone at DC dropped the ball and didn't put the Legends banner up top on this one. Uh, you know, I guess you could just lump this in with nobody in the bad office knowing what, you know, Gordon Godfrey looked like, even though he was Glorious Godfrey, an existing fourth world character with a pair of glasses. So, <laughs> I don't <laughs> Good point. And it's kind of weird that they didn't even tie Godfrey into this because, again, he is a fourth world character. So it, I guess maybe because as Legends number six comes out, he's, you know, taken care of and he's off, you know, he's gone and done. So, I, you know, I, maybe it was the ship dates didn't line up, but this came out the same month. So, yeah, it why not? It would have worked. It it's silly that it did, but oh well. Yeah. Really enjoyed having your script in this. You know, it's. It, and I'm going to sound critical, but like I really enjoyed this much more than like the subsequent New God series. Here, I, I don't know if you read that series that came after uh, Cosmic Odyssey, but uh, I really felt like this. Uh, I don't know. This felt a lot more in in fun to me. Right? Yeah. This this feels much more Kirby than that series, as I recall. It, and then of course Evanier gets Kirby. He was his assistant for years. He was a close personal friend of the Kirby family, and he literally wrote the book on Kirby a few years back. So it, it's got that, you know, you could see Kirby doing uh, this, this issue, even the fourth wall, fourth world, uh, breaking ringmaster. You know, you could see him doing that. <laughs> so <laughs> the ringmaster. Oh my gosh. I absolutely freaking love the ringmaster. You know, he ser- I didn't, we didn't mention him in the recap, but yeah, he serves as the narrator. He, the, as you said, the fourth world breaking narrator. He, he looks like a traditional ringmaster outfit, but it's got all kinds of Kirby elements in the costume, like crazy wires and lines and stuff, which looks great. And then it changes from time to time and he's funny and he's got a crazy dialogue the ringmaster is a real joy in this thing yeah imagine if a ringmaster walked on the set of thor ragnarok that's this guy you know yeah it's and i love how they use him because i mean he's he's like in he's he's on apocalypse he's in their house you know he's hanging outside i mean it, he's all over the place and it it really does sell the fun nature of this story and uh, it's, it's a great little hook and, it, you know, it doesn't get old. It, it, he did, Evanier did a great job with it. Yeah. I thought it's a, it's a fun little story. I mean, they couldn't sustain a series doing this thing, but for a one shot, what a great hook to run with. And, and one of the themes that kind of is throughout the whole book is the theme of escape. You know, it was in the title. It's what he does for a living. But like two examples with the narrator, when, uh, Mr. Miracle's depressed, he says, you know, he mentions, makes a comment about Mr. Miracle trying to escape from his senses. And then he, uh, another line, he says, you know, uh, the narrator says, and that they're going to look in on some freeform wrestling competition, scot-free versus his conscience, no holds barred. So even 
you know, talking about the, what's going on in Scott's head is still escape artwork. And uh, it's very clever. Very, very well done. The only thing I felt was a little weak in the writing was uh, the, the resolution with Darkseid, where Scott basically talks Darkseid down by saying he'll have to kill everyone. It seems to me, you know, when he's, Mr. Miracle's like, you know, you have to kill them, you have to kill everyone, you have to kill everyone here. Darkseid would just be like, okay, and start blasting away. But, uh, it's you know, it, it was fun for the story, and it, it brought it to a quick conclusion. So I guess I shouldn't claim it. Yeah, and I think Darkseid, you know, he's changed. Be- I think he was more like this back then. He was that kind of more Machiavellian villain than he is now. He's just like a big brute with freaking laser beams, and he's got... Omega symbols all over him. You know, yeah. he's been Jim lead up and, and back then he was a more contemplative behind the scenes type villain. I mean, when you, he could use the Omega effect, Omega effect on you, but he more often used it like he does here on Calabac and, and Granny Goodness and disintegrates them. You know, I mean, he didn't use it on heroes that often. He's like, you know, you could, you could t- like him and the Phantom Stranger going back and forth in legends, you know, mm-hmm. so. I think it fits more with the old school dark side. Nowadays, dark side, it kind of stands out, but you know, they just made him a thug with laser beams coming out of his eyes now, basically. So. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, even Rude's art, he doesn't draw him, you know, massive. He looks like he's a big guy, but he still looks like somewhat humanly proportionate, you know? Uh, and Kirby did that. That's the way Kirby drew him. Mm-hmm. So. And Rude's art. Oh my gosh. I mean, I, I loved him on Nexus. So this was just an absolute joy coming to this. Oh yeah. I, I I had never I never read Nexus. I couldn't find it. I didn't have a comic shop, but I remember seeing the artwork for it in like magazines like Comic Collector and Comics Feature that you would actually find on the newsstand back then. And he did one issue of Tales of the Teen Titans number forty eight before it converted over to reprints. Uh, and I thought that was, I mean, it was like artwork. I had never quite seen artwork like that before in a comic. I mean, it was like such a fresh style. I couldn't like say it looked like really anybody else's artwork. Uh, he did that Husu Blue Beetle piece, mm-hmm. uh, in early Husu too. So I was already a fan of his, uh, you know, by this, by this point. And like I said, I didn't find this book, but I think the next thing he did that really wowed me was that World's Finest oh, miniseries he did with Dave Gibbons. So oh, that's good. great. So oh, good. it's gorgeous. Yeah. Oh, mm. but this is. This is, it's, it's, again, it's kind of strange. He captures Kirby, but his art is more naturalistic. It's not quite photorealistic, but the characters' movements are more flowing. It's like snapshots of people actually moving. That's what it feels like, but it's, it's not as bombastic as Kirby, but he's still got that Kirby pastiche in there. It still feels Kirby, but it's like Kirby filtered through some new fresh perspective. It's very, and I think it still looks very modern even today. And I, and it's, it's like, it's almost like the artwork was ahead of its time. And it looks like, like what a lot of like stuff looks like now, you know, like Rude was ahead of the curve with his, with his style. Like nobody else was doing it back then, but there's a lot of people that are kind of channeling a Rude feel nowadays, like guys like, Marcos Martin and people like that, and even Mike Allred that have that kind of, you know, they got a little bit of Mazzuchelli, they got a little bit of, um, of Rude, and they're like, it, it's, it's got this, um, I don't know, it's like this kind of hip, uh, almost postmodern take on classic, a uh, classic comic art style. Hmm. And Rube was doing it here like 30 years ago. <laughs> well, it's interesting you're comparing him to Kirby. It's actually in a recent issue of Back Issue Magazine, issue number 104. It was all about the fourth world people. And there's actually a page or so of Steve Rude talking about this special. And one of the things Rube. he says in here was that Mark Evanier had uh, shared with Rude a comment from Jack himself about this special. So apparently, uh, Jack said that he saw this book and, uh, he, Jack said that he really felt like 
they uh, they had captured the essence of Mr. Miracle, the spirit of his characters, without actually having to steal his style. Which is pretty, that's wow. a huge compliment. Wow. And goes right in line with what you were just saying. Right. But that's what Rude does right here. He doesn't, I mean, there's some panels here that you can say, oh yeah, Kirby may have drawn that, but it's got enough Kirby in it without just being like they swiped him. You know, one, you know, it's not just all squiggly lines and, and Kirby crackle. It's, it's, it's got the essence of Kirby in it. I say that's, that's fair. And I'm going to take your really nice compliment and bring it down a couple of sleazy levels to just say that Big Barda by Steve Rude. Whoa. Oh man. <laughs> I just, even just standing there in jeans and a t-shirt, she is smoking hot. I mean, I don't think Steve Rude knows how to draw an un- unattractive lady anyway. It actually goes for everyone because even the guys are hot. I mean, it's Scott Free in here. He's got this classic chiseled, handsome look like he's like someone out of the Hollywood's golden age. He's just handsome as hell. And, he, and even Oberon's cute. He looks like a little tiny Archie Bunker. He's adorable. So I <laughs> great artwork. And the only last two things I wanted to say about that, this issue serves two really important functions. Beside all the story we talked about and the, and the individuals, it sets up a framework. The first thing they did was they ignored a lot of the post-Kirby continuity for Mr. Miracle. Because after Kirby left, they, they brought back the new gods, and they went on a whole other continuity storyline, and, and Mr. Miracle went through a lot of changes. And they just completely ignored it. It's almost like they just picked up right from where Kirby had left off and said, this is yeah. the, you know, the version of our version of Mr. Miracle is the one that Kirby left behind. And then the other important thing is this story here actually sets up the whole suburban Earth dynamic for Scott and Barton, which will last for many, many, many years. And uh, it, it, unless I'm mistaken, I think I believe the dynamic of them being a married couple living on Earth all came from this special. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think that definitely the suburban wanting to settle down in a house, you know, that, you know, and just the traditional family. I think that started here. Yeah, seems like it did. All right, folks, we're now going to do the last thing we typically do in the JLI podcast. We are going to grant someone the much-coveted Pwahaha Award. This is where we nominate the funniest moment in the comic. Both myself and Chris are going to pick a moment, and only one of them is going to walk out with a Pwahaha Award. Chris, what's your pick? Okay, my pick is where Barda punches Scott off panel on page six, panel two, and after worrying that her husband almost died, she shouts, You do that to me again, and I'll kill you! So I, I, I thought that was hilarious. And you just see like Scott's mask and like part of his like arms and legs like in the panel and the rest of him's gone. It's it's hilarious. <laughs> Chris, you think maybe you're just reading a little too much of your own life into that panel? I'm just – and anyway, uh, my pick is a little bit different. I picked when Funky Flashman shows up uh, and he tries to bring Scott back into working with him. He actually has a contract and he holds it up right in Scott's face, right for our reading. And the contract itself all by itself is hilarious. The contract reads – I, Scott, do hereby renounce all rights of every kind, including but not limited to, of rights that have not even been invented yet to Funky Flashman, who further shall have the right to use my name, likeness, body, wife, friends, in any way he likes, and shall have no claim to any credit for anything I do or anything that Funky does not want me to do, no matter what Funky does to me. It's I, I found that absolutely hilarious. However, stepping back from it, I think your nomination actually is funnier because anything Barta does where she's angry because of out of a, a positive emotion like love cracks me up. So I, I'm going to agree with you. I think we should give it to Barta. Uh, I think we better give it to Barta. You don't want to <laughs> piss her off. <laughs> Congratulations, Barta. You win this month's Bwahaha Award. Uh, it is as tangible as the laughter we give you. So, all right, folks. Well, that's going to do it for this abbreviated episode of the JLI Podcast. Chris, thanks so much for appearing on this mini episode of the show. Uh, thanks for having me on, Shag. I know it'll probably be another four years or something before I'm back on the show proper, so it's nice to talk to you again. Are you kidding? Yeah, you already appeared once. You had issue number five. You had the one punch issue. You weren't getting another one, pal. 
Well, I mean, honestly, I, I really didn't want to be on your show again. I'm just trying to get on this sampler as much as possible to plug my shows. <laughs> and this is a great comic, so, you know, bonus points. So there we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's going to do it, folks. Uh, if you've enjoyed this coverage, please be sure to check out the Justice League International Wahaha podcast, where we're covering each and every issue of the Keith Giffen and J.M.D. Mateus era of the Justice League. Thanks for listening, folks. I'm Shag. I'm Chris. And you've been listening to a sample of the JLI podcast. Want to make something of it? That was the JLI Wahaha podcast and their coverage of the Mr. Er, Cluster Serial Special. And you can have the entire library of this ongoing program exclusively through your ClusterCast application for only $99.99.99. ClusterCast intergalactronic charges will definitely apply. But because you have stuck with us this far, let me let you in on a little-known ClusterCast secret. You can actually avoid excess ClusterCast intergalactronic charges. Just purchase our ClusterCast Cubby Data Storage Unit Blocks, item 18066. Each block can hold 1.78 episodes, so you can just download once and play your beloved 1.78 episodes over and over again. So say goodbye to additional ClusterCast intergalactronic charges, and say hello to your new ClusterCast Cubby data storage and replay charges. We're in the final cycle of the FW Summer Sampler Super Spectacular, and we still have a number of programming wonders to offer for your voracious consumption from the Cluster's Fire and Water podcast collection. For example, this charming little occasional feature called Mountain Comics, item 50617. In this feature, the ever-present podcast host Rob Kelly examines the comic books he had purchased to pass the time during his family Pocono Mountains vacations during the Earthen Time period referred to as the 1970s and 1980s. And this special sampler exclusively hijacked, er, created for the cluster, is a special behind-the-scenes look at one particular aspect of the program that has nothing to do with comic books. On my Mountain Comic Show, uh, I talk about the comics that I bought when I was on vacation with my parents in the Pocono Mountains in the 70s and 80s, and I end every episode with a period-specific song uh, that we heard on the radio from around that time. And one of the reasons I do that is uh, we didn't have a TV at the cabin. So comic books and reading and the radio were our main sources of entertainment. So in a lot of ways, the music of uh, the mountain trips uh, is just as memorable and just as uh, evocative of that time as, as the comic books. And of all the songs that I think about that make me think of those trips up to the Poconos, the number one uh, number one choice, I would say, is probably Jerry Rafferty's Baker Street, uh, which was released on February 3rd, 1978. It hit number two on the Billboard chart, stayed there for six weeks, but I think it, uh, it shows you how popular the song was. That it was still playing in heavy rotation uh, in August of that year, which is probably when I, I heard it the most. It's from the album City to City. Now, for those of you who don't know or remember who Jerry Rafferty was, he was one of the singers in the band Steeler's Wheel, uh, which is their biggest hit was probably uh, Stuck in the Middle with You, which is uh, famously used in the Reservoir Dogs ear-cutting scene. 
Uh, but yeah, he went. Um, apparently, there was a lot of legal problems that he had with that band, and when they broke up, he was forced to sit out his career for a couple of years. And so, this album, City to City, was like his first return to the music industry as a solo artist. And Baker Street, which is uh, based on a real street in London, I guess that's uh, that Jerry spent a lot of time at, is a song. It's it's famous for its incredibly big saxophone riff and guitar riff. I mean, this song is like six minutes long, and in between the lyrics, you've got these huge, huge riffs that just have this big, epic sound. And one of the things I I like about it is that in between all this mad cacophony of music, when you get down to the the lyrics part, it's very quiet and soft. And I really like uh, that dichotomy of the way it goes big, and then it goes small, and then it goes big again, and then it goes small. It's almost like a, a Paul McCartney song in that way. It just has all these multiple parts. And this was a song that I you know, just, again, I remember it so vividly from my time up in the Poconos. And then, like a lot of songs, I just forgot about it. Like, I just hadn't heard it in probably 10 to 15, almost 20 years. And then a snippet of it can be heard in the film Goodwill Hunting, uh, the scene where they go, uh, where Ben Affleck and Casey Affleck and Matt Damon are riding in the car and they see the guys on the um, the basketball court they have a beef with and they get in that fight. And there's the slow motion scene where Will is punching one of the guys and you hear a little snippet of Baker Street. And it was incongruous choice to use for that scene. But I remember seeing that movie in the theater and thinking of that song and going, oh my God, I haven't heard that song in decades. Baker Street. Wow. And so eventually when I got iTunes, it was one of the first songs I ever bought. Bought all these songs that I remembered from my childhood. And so it was great. And so Baker Street is just one of the, the number one songs I think about when I recall that time. The uh, the guitar solo is by a musician named Hugh Burns. The sax solo is by somebody named Raphael Ravenscroft, which is one of the greatest names of all time. And like I said, I really like the words in Baker Street. I think it's uh, it's it's really interesting. It's winding your way down on Baker Street like in your head and dead in your feet. Well, another crazy day. You'll drink the night away and forget about everything. The city desert makes you feel so cold. It's got so many people, but it's got no soul. And it's taken you so long to find out you were wrong when you thought it held everything. You used to think that it was so easy. You used to say that it was so easy, but you're trying. You're trying now. Another year and then you'd be happy. Just one more year and then you'd be happy, but you're crying. You're crying now. Way down the street, there's a light in his place. He opens the door. He's got that look on his face. And he asks you where you've been. You tell him who you've seen, and you talk about everything. He's got this dream about buying some land. He's going to give up the booze and the one-night stands. And then he'll settle down in some quiet little town and forget about everything. But you know he'll always keep moving. You'll know he's never going to stop moving because he's rolling. He's the rolling stone. And when you wake up, it's a new morning. The sun is shining. It's a new morning. And you're going. You're going home. And I have to think that's Jerry Rafferty talking about himself a bit. He had a really pretty bad problem with alcoholism. Unfortunately, he died very young in his 60s, and I think it was related to that. So this was a guy that I think wanted to kind of get a handle on his demons, and he wasn't really fully able to. But at least at this point, when he wrote Baker Street, he was coming out of the bad period and and looking forward to something uh, much more positive. He has another song called Right Down the Line, which is a wonderful pan to uh, his wife or his girlfriend at the time, who really he gives credit as like sort of saving his life. And so that's another song I remember from the, the Poconos is Right Down the Line. So, you know, his career as a solo artist didn't last too long past this, but Baker Street is just one of those songs that uh, I will never 
just never forget. And it's been covered dozens of times. Slash gives it credit uh, for saying it was an inspiration for Sweet Child of Mine, which is kind of amazing. It's been mentioned in uh, lots of other TV shows and stuff. I think I mentioned it was on Goodwill Hunting. So uh, when I want to recall that time, uh, of going on vacation with my family, and it's not comic book related, it's it's this song. And when I took a trip up to the Poconos a couple of years ago, the first time in decades, I made a uh, Mountain Songs mixtape, and this song was, of course, on there. So uh, give it a listen. You can find it on YouTube. It's, it's an amazing piece of work. Jerry Rafferty, Baker Street, and uh, it's uh, truly one of my favorite Mountain Songs. Comics can be yours and on your cluster cast application for only and say it with me now 999999 Moving on a short time ago you had savored the analysis of Earth and Cinema in the Film and Water podcast Another well-renowned movie of Earth is called Star Wars which chronicles the story of another interplanetary empire that had once ruled a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. How the Earthers managed to acquire this ancient story from the far-flung reaches of the universe before the Cluster is a mystery. Although I understand that many Bothans died to bring them that information. But you can learn about this epic tale without sacrificing a single Bothan spy, thanks to Give Me Those Star Wars, item 52577. This podcast is hosted by Ryan Daly, along with an array of guest hosts said to originate from a wretched hive of scum and villainy. Sounds like Lord Manga's type of company. Many botnots were deactivated to bring us this sampler, so you better... No, wait, they were deactivated bringing warm milk to Lord Manga, because it wasn't warm enough. Hello, and welcome to a special summer sampler edition of Give Me Those Star Wars, the official Star Wars show of the Fire and Water Network. I'm Ryan Daly, and joining me from the Lantern cast is Mr. Mark Marble. What's up, Mark? 
What's going on, Ryan? <laughs> Thank you very much for coming back to the show. Uh, for everybody, our fun little topic of discussion is Star Wars Mount Rushmore. Uh, and I will explain what that is in a moment. But first, Mark is here because he brought this topic to me. Uh, he mentioned it, and I just I loved the idea. I really wanted to make it the first episode of 2018, kick the year off with a bang. But then I saw The Last Jedi. <laughs> and, and, and that just killed everything. <laughs> it ripped through my heart like Admiral Haldo going through the First Order Star Destroyers. <laughs> But, but in a less impressive sound effect kind of way. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> moving, moving beyond that movie. Mount Rushmore. Uh, carved into the rocky edifice, you have these four faces of U.S. presidents, and generally considered at the time of its creation to be the best or the most impactful presidents in our national history. Something that has become a popular topic in bars and internet forums, really, is taking the Mount Rushmore concept and applying it to other categories besides presidents. For instance, the NBA Mount Rushmore, who are the four greatest basketball players of all time. Uh, and one that comes up from time to time in our fan circles is the comic book creator Mount Rushmore that asks you to name the four greatest comic book creators. And I have never been able to do that one. I just can't narrow it down to four. Can you? Like, who would you have on that one? No, I don't. I I don't think I could do four. I mean, some some people pop. Yeah, once you start thinking about it, it would get hard because mm-hmm. it's like who. You might be able to do like a, maybe an eight or a ten, and then but once you start whittling it down, that would kind of. Yeah, I would imagine that would be quite difficult. Right. I mean, like unless you grouped people together, like Siegel and Schuster, or you know, Kane and Finger, Kirby and Lee, or something like that. But like. Like, I mean, I, because I, I would think Stan Lee and Jack Kirby have to go on that and did not put Will Eisner on it. Well, then you only have one left. And for all the people who created Superman, Batman, like all the, you're going to leave that. It's not, nah, I just can't do it. But no. Um, so that now brings us to the Mount Rushmore of Star Wars. Which four characters from the galaxy far, far away should go on the side of a mountain to represent this franchise? So Mark and I have each made two lists based on different criteria. We are going to share those lists, we're going to debate the selections a little bit, and then we are going to compile a joint list that we both agree upon, and that will be the official Give Me Those Star Wars Mount Rushmore. So for the first list, I went with Iconic Status. Which four characters have had the greatest impact, for whatever reason, on mainstream popular culture? Which characters sort of they kind of transcend the movies and have become so iconic that when you see them or hear reference to them, you immediately think of Star Wars. Which characters, even if you haven't seen Star Wars, you kind of know who they are and, and you kind of click with them. You know you know what it's referencing. So for this list, one, two, three, four, I have Darth Vader, Yoda, R2-D2, and Princess Leia. Interesting. So, uh, there was one alternate that I almost put instead of Princess Leia, and that was Chewbacca. Aww, um, I know, I know. Um, but I went with Princess Leia because of, you know, part in the sentimentality, you know, thinking about Carrie Fisher and everything. Um, but what she sort of represents among fanboys and fangirl culture as this strong, positive female, just the look of the hair buns, you know, something like that. Um, I, I think that's something that sort of transcends the movies and everything like that and kind of stands out. So I think, and I think people know the lines, like, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope, even if they haven't seen the movie, they kind of know that. So anybody on that list that you want to challenge? 
Well, I guess theoretically I have to challenge two because my four are different. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start with the ones. Let's see. I ha- I have actually you ha- no you had Yo- you had Yoda right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the two we agreed on are Yoda and Darth Vader. Yeah. Uh, I have Luke. Okay. I think Luke, I think in the sliding scale of Leia was tough. I left. I almost went for Leia. She was in my alternate group. I almost went for Leia for the same reasons. Probably one of the reasons you put her on the sentimentality, the fact that she just that Carrie Fisher just passed away. But I don't. I think comparing the two of them, I think Luke, if, if we use Luke compared to Leia, Luke has had greater impact, and people think of Luke more than they think of Leia when they. I think when they think of Star Wars, but. Mm. And I also – and the fourth one was tough for pop culture I could, because that's why I really thought about Leia too. But I, st- I still stuck in Obi-Wan because I think almost everybody knows who Obi-Wan Kenobi is, mm-hmm. partially even because of the line that you said but that Leia said. But I think most – I think Obi-Wan is, has – even from the original trilogy, Obi-Wan kind of became part of pop culture and the prequels obviously. You got to see more of him. Mm-hmm. So, But I had I – had Le- Leia and Han were both of my alternates as far as from a pop culture perspective. I actually didn't think about Chewie, but Chewie actually – I think Chewie is like uh, coming on the outs- coming down the outside and, ga- <laughs> and gaining. Cause especially from the more movies Chewie is in, I think Chewie has been stealing almost every movie he's been in lately. So I think – And it's for, – for me, like with this category, it wasn't even so much like the prominence within the movies and the story. It was sort of like – the recognizable. I mean, like, true. Like uh, the chew, like Chewbacca, the Wookiee, like the that visual look is not something you find in any other franchise. That's um, true. And, and that was sort of where my head was at, like with that, and and the reason I included a droid too with R two D two, you know, the, the the merchandising factor almost of like those things. Like you see Yoda and R two on you know lunch boxes and piggy banks and things like that. Um, and that's kind of where my head was at, and I I I see them more as sort of kind of universally maybe more maybe more like merchandisable i think maybe that's kind of what i was thinking about with this category more so than somebody like luke who is obviously the the central character of the franchise at least the first part of it that we're familiar with but i know i don't see his face necessarily on as much material no, I, I from a merchandising perspective, I can see that. I think the problem also is, as we well know, thanks to episode seven and eight, a mm-hmm. lot of the class, lot, a lot of the classic characters have right. kind of been being their overall impact, not just in the story, mm-hmm. but also potentially in pop culture, have taken a hit because, especially, right. I and we'll talk about R two when we get to the other list. But I thought R two has kind of been such a such a non factor mm-hmm. in, in the, like especially in since you know in, in episode seven and eight that I think while he did cross my mind. It was easier to take him off of this list because it's like who has permeated pop culture? Yes, R2 has. There's no doubt. I think everybody we've talked about has. You do bring up the good point because now, like, I mean, for a different generation, it's like what what is going to be the defining image of Princess Leia? Is right. it going to be a character from the 70s or 80s that we remember? Is it going to be General Leia just before she died? You know, in, in episode seven or eight. Is it going to be the CGI monkey face Leia from Rogue One? (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people like that CGI. I did not. Tarkin was a much better CGI. Mm -hmm. They should have just had had that character from the side or in the (laughs) shadows and just had the voice. And you didn't need to see her face anyway. You knew who she was. Well, it's interesting. My second list is actually a little bit closer to yours. Actually, we had three overlaps between my second list and your first one. For the second list, the second category, I went with which four characters are the most important to the saga of films? Which characters have had the greatest influence on the events of the film? 
And I'm already, I can already, I can tell that the person who's on my alternate is probably going to be your number one pick. And I, and I have a feeling I'll end up changing my mind. But the four that I went with were Darth Vader, Luke Skywalker, Obi-Wan Kenobi. And then for the fourth, I actually had Kylo Ren. And then it actually, it came to me almost as an afterthought that my, my alternate is the Emperor, Palpatine, Darth Sidious, whatever you want to call him. And he, he might actually be more probably more influential than some of those but at least for the last one like before i saw the last jedi i was really thinking about strongly having ray on this list but after the last jedi i have to give it to kylo ren because if we take the movie as at its word that ray is not a secret skywalker then you really have kylo ren or ben as the last of the skywalker family tree he's the last of the skywalker legacy the last of anakin and luke and leia he's also the last of han solo's legacy he killed han solo um he killed his master he killed snoke and took over he did what darth vader talked about doing but never could so i think in terms of just we don't know ultimately what his fate will be in the next one but i think you know, just in two appearances, he set himself up as this very important linchpin figure for the end of the franchise. But I didn't include anybody from episodes seven and eight, and that's not necessarily an indictment on seven and eight, mostly eight. No, <laughs> uh, but simply because much like being a fair judge of a presidency, you need to wait till they leave office before you can really judge them on any level. I think I think the same way with the new characters from seven and eight. I hadn't really considered Kylo Ren a lot. I had considered Rey, and depending on what happens with Rey, because obviously after Episode Nine, it's not like the odds are Daisy Ridley will be back in some, at some point playing Rey again. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rey could very well be on this list, but Rey hasn't done anything to be on this list yet. All right. And I think and Kylo, I could your your points are valid about Kylo because of what he represents, even though in a way. I think it further cements the reason why Vader's on this list. Because <laughs> he's just a because of Kylo Ren, he keeps the whole Vader presence so heavy in, in, in this in this trilogy. My my list, we agree on three. Agree on three or four. I have Vader. I have Luke. I have Obi Wan. And this is the list I actually put R two in. Hmm. Even though obviously seven and eight have hurt R two tremendously. <laughs> yeah. Even though he did have something relevant to do in in his two minutes being awake in, in episode <laughs> seven. But R2, if you go back and look at the, the first six movies especially, he was such a huge factor at everything that he did and keeping them alive and, and you know, in a way literally bridging the trilogies you know, that I thought R2 was really important. The Emperor was – the Emperor is another good choice. I had not really – I think the main reason I did not consider the Emperor was mostly because we know he's a non-factor in episode four. Mm-hmm. He really – his presence is really not felt at all in episode seven and eight. And I, I love Palpatine. I love Ian McDermott. He was, you know, the, he, he he was one of the bright spots in the prequels. But I think again, it's hard judging all nine movies now because we have eight, and it's the stuff that happened in seven and eight are kind of like almost in their own world. But I, so I, that's yeah. So that's why I didn't have Palpatine. And, and again, Kylo, I I don't like Kylo enough to really to rank him that high. But your mm-hmm. points are valid. Mm-hmm. So and just like Ray, I think Ray is the one from the pre from the sequels. I probably would have considered or will consider down the road. But for now, I think just like I, I, I Leia was an alternate on this list too. But again, like, in the base on kind of like the reason I, I I kicked her off the other list. That again, when you put in the, look at the big picture, certainly story wise, she really wasn't very important to the story other than Episode Four. Right. She really was. I mean, so I. So at the very at least at the very least on this list we got three or four <laughs> right off the bat. <laughs> All right, so then 
let's try and get looking at all the names that we've gone through based on whatever criteria you want, whether it's iconic status, whether it's importance, whether it's simple favoritism. How are we going to put? How are we going to la- limit this to just four? Um, I am willing to take Kylo Ren off of. <laughs> off the, I'm, I'm willing to veto him myself, and just say it's too soon to judge anybody from the new set of movies. Um, he hasn't quite earned it yet, although he's he's shaping up to possibly be a, a position of prominence. But yeah, I'm fine saying no Kylo Ren. So if I was gonna, if I, I was I think gonna, I, I, oh, do you? Let me let me suggest this. Do you have any problem with having Darth Vader and Yoda? No, I just wrote Darth Vader down as you were talking. <laughs> Darth Vader, Darth Vader is the number one pick. It's our yes. unanimous pick. There's no doubt that the Darth Vader. Le- that is when you think of Star Wars, you think of Darth Vader and his influence has obviously been felt throughout all eight movies thus far. So Vader's Vader's the no-brainer. He's, right. He's up. He's he's up. Right. So Vader's the one we absolutely agree. I would be willing to lose Yoda. Uh, I, was, I, I kind of put Yoda up there as a pop culture thing, well, and because of, because of uh, merchandising too. I would fight for Yoda. I would put both of them on there. I mean, I just think I mean like the quotability, like just like the the backwards pearls of wisdom and everything, like the visual look, what he represents, and that's I mean not even looking at like his part in the prequels and right. Clone Wars cartoons and everything like that, and and just. Even just thinking about him from you know the the classic trilogy, I think there's something. I mean, he's on the cover of like one of the DV, like the Return of the Jedi DVD set or something, or the or the, the VHS right. set, yes, yes, the re-release those, yes. set. I mean, I don't know. I think when I when I think of Star Wars, I do think of Yoda. By the way, I do not want them to make a Yoda solo film. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, uh, but, I, I, yeah, yeah, I don't think so. But if they're gonna if they're gonna do that, they they better do it soon. If they really. St- or else we won't be dealing with Frank Oz's voice anymore, probably. So they, <laughs> but I could live with Yoda. I don't know who we're going to lose, but I could live. With, I could li- live with Yoda being number two. Um, okay, so that's two. So who else would we that's have? Two. I would have to fight for Luke if we're talking about both pop culture and most important. I'm okay with that. Is, Luke, Luke Skywalker, I'm absolutely fine with. He is he is the hero of what I think of as the Star Wars saga in terms of like the, the original trilogy and everything like that. He is the hero. It is his quest, his quest narrative. So I would have no problem putting Luke on that list. So now we have now we have a tough final choice, right? Because we have we have what? That's a you had you had Chewie you had Chewy Chewy Leia we R2, both have we, we both have R two on one list and Obi Wan yeah so that's that's I, just because everybody else is a strong sort of force user and I would I would pick all the others over Obi Wan as much as I like Obi Wan I like what he represents I, I just think <sighs> yeah 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 no, no it's I I from a personal standpoint. I would rather Obi Wan be on the list than Yoda because I think Obi Wan is. They both. It's a. It's a. It's a. It's a crapshoot. But in a way, since Obi, to me, Obi Wan is such a perf, the perfect representation of what the Jedi are supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And I think Obi Wan really. It is tough for me. I think of Obi Wan, and I like Obi Wan more than over overall more than Yoda as much as I like Yoda. I, I don't have a problem with there only being three. You know, three Force users on this list. I, I agree with that concept. It's just kind of. If we need to wipe off Obi Wan, I, I can I can live I can live with Obi Wan. Let me put this out there. Just a question: Like, if you were to put Obi Wan's face on this Mount Rushmore, is it Alec Guinness's face or Ewan McGregor's? <laughs> I suppose it would be Alec Guinness's face. Okay. Uh, even though you know, at this point, especially if once they do, do the Kenobi solo movie, obviously Ewan would have played him more. 
and would have spent more, much more time on screen. But to me, yeah, I probably would do the the Ben the, the Ben Obi Wan at this point. I, mm-hmm. So I would agree with Alec Guinness. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> so. As much as I love Princess Leia and I love Carrie Fisher and my, my heart goes out to that, I, I think I think that's more of a sentimental pick and more thinking about the the iconography of the hair buns and the sort of princess <laughs> in white. I think I would I would have an easier time living with R two D two or Chewbacca or I can uh, I can live with R two since we both had him at least on one of our lists. Yeah, let's do R two. Okay. You you look at him and you know what you know what Star Wars. It's He's such a good character, and it's... Yeah, all right. right. So I think we got it. So, Darth Vader, Yoda, Luke Skywalker, and R2-D2. Can we live with that? I can live with it. I'll still cry over Obi-Wan, but Yoda's a good... If Obi-Wan's got to be sloppy seconds, I guess the Yoda (laughs) makes makes perfect sense. (laughs) You know what? I'm not wild about all of the presidents on the actual Mount Rushmore, so... But, but, but we didn't vote on them or decide who was going to be on it either. But yeah, exactly. I, I, I agree. Yeah. If I had my call, we totally would have had Taft on there. <laughs> he, he would have needed two spaces. Yeah. <laughs> it would just be Taft. Not Taft. <laughs> Sorry, Taft fans. Yeah, all of you. <laughs> yeah, all two of you. Uh, all right. Well, thank you very much, Mark, for joining me on this sampler-sized installment of Give Me Those Star Wars. Uh, why don't you tell the listeners where they can find you if they want to argue with your choices? Not <laughs> well, just your Star Wars my, choices, your life choices, any choices. My life choices. Or praise my choices. Uh, the, our website is lanterncast.com. The email is lanterncast at gmail.com. We have 708 Lantern is the voicemail. So we we besides Green Lantern stuff, we do a lot of pop pop culture stuff, a lot of movie episodes. Uh, so that's probably the easiest way to get in touch with us, or me in particular. The hell with Chad, me. This is me, my time. I've been waiting for you to say that for years. <laughs> Which part, the hell with Chad or my time? Both. <laughs> I, I think a lot of people have. Sorry, Chad. No. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much for listening, folks. And remember, you can find other episodes of Give Me Those Star Wars on iTunes and on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. And until next time, may the Force be with you. We can give you Give Me Those Star Wars by simply giving us $99.99.99. That is only 0% off the normal exorbitant... Oh, uh, attention, attention all personnel, and all promising consumers of the cluster. I now offer to you, for your audio gluttonous edification, MASHCAST, item 40772. This podcast... Hosted by the prolific podcast host Rob Kelly, is a scrutinious celebration of each episodic interval of MASH, one of Earth's most eminent comedy-drama televisual programs of their 20th century of recorded time. In fact, the original broadcast waves of Earth that carry that MASH televisual programming are already on their way here, and are expected to reach this sector of space in about 6.8 megastar cycles. But why wait, when you can have a taste of the jocularity right now with the following sampler?
and by purchasing the MASHCAST feed from the cluster for only $99.99.99. All right, so there has been a uh, MASHCAST Wonderful Toys crossover before, uh, of course, when we did our episode on the TriStar line of action figures. Mm-hmm. And, but there's another set of uh, MASH action figures. And, and I have to ask you, Chris, as the host of Wonderful Toys and, and the resident toy expert on the network, can you call anything that just featured two dolls a line? Can that technically be a line? <laughs> well, I guess it's more of a line than it being one figure, but <laughs> it's, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's, yeah, I don't really know. And the funny thing is, the first time I saw these uh, was in that uh, Tomart's uh, Price Guide to Action Figure Collectibles 1992 edition that I've had for years. And they show uh, they show Hawkeye and Hot Lips, but they list a BJ figure. Ooh, I didn't know that. I don't. Oh, I don't. That's... I wouldn't bet the farm on that. I'm saying. I'm guessing they're wrong because they, there's several. That it's a very exhaustive book trying to cover every action figure line, and I think they. There's a lot of misinformation in there, not and it, you know, especially on minor lines like, like this that you know, like you said, it's got two figures in it. Uh, so I, I'm guessing BJ doesn't exist, but at some point somebody thought he did. So anyway. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, these are very, very strange. I saw these on eBay one time, and I just was gobsmacked that they exist. And they are nine-inch mash action figures. One of Hawkeye, one of Hot Lips. They are both dressed in the exact same outfit. They've got fatigues and boots. They come in a little uh, Red Cross uh, case, and they're in uh, they're in scrubs, and they're in they have um, both wearing hats, neither of which any character really wore <laughs> or anything. Um, I can't find any copyright dates on them. The only my the packages that I have, they have a little stamp that say December 1977, but I don't think that necessarily indicates anything uh, in terms of when they were produced. It might have just been when this store got them. They were made by a company called Durham Toys. I don't know anything about Durham Toys. They are copyrighted 1969, which was when the movie was presumably copyrighted. So maybe, you know, all the MASH stuff dates back to 1969. On the packaging, the packaging is actually pretty nice. Um, They have these red cards, and on the side are film strips, and you see black and white shots of... Uh, the MASH crew, and you can actually see uh, Trapper in in one of them playing golf with Hawkeye, and you can see Radar as well. Um, but, uh, of course, those figures were never produced, which is why you're mentioning of a BJ. I, I just doubt there was ever a BJ. I because that He came along a lot later. I can't imagine this line ever went anywhere past uh, these two dolls. And the other thing that makes them sort of notable is they have like a quote-unquote power action <laughs> where um, if you press the button on their back, Hawkeye swings his golf club, and Margaret swings her, her Red Cross pack, and that's all they do. Um, so <laughs> there's not, not a whole lot to really be done with these characters. The Hawkeye figure actually looks kind of like Klinger, because he's got like, very dark skin, as, as uh, Klinger would say, olive skin makes good kin. But uh, it, it, these are very, very weird dolls, and they're, as I said, they're nine inches, so they're bigger than your Migos. I'm guessing they were designed to be playable with your G.I. Joes, mm. uh, which makes sense because, of course, after G.I. Joe gets wounded out in the field, you bring him back to the 477th and Hawkeye and Hot Lips work on him. So, you know, it all fits together. Right. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, it's Durham actually, they made a lot of rack toys, and one figure they made was a kung fu figure that had a push button, a lot of, you know, karate chop in action. And, in fact, it was advertised in some Marvel comics in the early 70s alongside Migos. 
And there's a lot of people think that Migo made some kind of kung fu figure. And I think they called it kung fu trying to trade on the uh, David Carradine uh, TV sure, show sure. at the time, which was really popular at the time. Uh, but it's not actually a licensed figure of, of David Carradine's uh, cane figure from, from Kung Fu. Uh, but uh, it, it, uh, they made that, so that might be kind of where they got this action feature. But they looking them up, they made, uh, they made water pistols that were like uh, figural with giant heads. So they made like Superman... <laughs> Batman, Spider-Man. They made the Lone Ranger and Tonto. Which, ah, Lone Ranger again. Yeah, Lone Ranger again. And, and apparently Butch Cavendish, although I didn't see a picture of him, but he's advertised on the package. Uh, so again, with the Butch Cavendish. Uh, they made a lot of Disney, uh, Looney Tunes, and Hanna-Barbera squirt guns like the Flintstones, Bu uh, Bugs Bunny, Mickey Mouse. Uh, there was some weird stuff they made for Marvel. They made a Hulk workbench, which is this <laughs> giant figural... Uh, it's like the Hulk's from the head and shoulders of the Hulk. And it's like, he's holding up this, this workbench with all these plastic tools that kids can play with. <laughs> sure. Okay. Why not? <laughs> yeah. Hulk make bookshelf, you know, or I don't, okay. you know, uh, and, and the weirdest thing I think they made was another Hulk item it was called a Hulk head. And it was this blank green head with the Hulk hair that you could take off and different eyes and, and mouths, so it's basically like a Mr. Potato Head of the Hulk. You guys should Google that. You won't believe this thing that it actually existed. And uh, so, as weird as this this weird sub, not quite a line of Mash figures is, Durham made a lot of weird stuff. <laughs> they were, yeah, they sounds like they were really all over the place. This sounds like one of those things where 20th Century Fox had the license. They were shopping it around. And, you know, most toy manufacturers, if, if truly this happened in 69, 70, 71, 72, when the show was just starting up, Mego was just coming into into creation, basically. Well, no, not the company, but they were getting into the action doll right. market. And I'm sure most companies were like, MASH? Like, what? You know, what are we going to do with that? So, no. And so they, you know, licensed it down to the more down market Durham toys. Now, the, the two dolls that I have are in the packages. So I'm, I'm, I was never able to actually like hold the dolls and see if they worked or whatever, or even what they looked like under their scrubs, because I don't want to ruin the packaging because they might be worth money someday. So right. uh, for the longest time, I, I wondered what they kind of looked like under their scrubs. And then finally, like a year or two later, I saw on eBay somebody was selling a Hot Lips doll loose in the pack, so without the packaging and no scrubs. And so you can see the body. And it's clearly just the Hawkeye body with, like, some boobs attached to it. <laughs> and the head is just stuck on, and it's really upsetting. It just looks very grotesque. And um, so when I, I – later on in my, uh, my Aftermash blog, when I did a post just about the Hot Lips doll or what it looked like under – the, the clothing, I got a comment from Hot Lips herself, Loretta Switch, <laughs> who I had met at that point at, the, at a Comic-Con, and she said, not sure it looks like me, I was a little taller. <laughs> so, <laughs> I love you, Loretta. Don't ever change. She's fantastic. So, so yeah, um, these, are, the, the, these two dolls are just a weird little notation in a mash uh, you know the the history of mash trivia i don't again i can't find anything else about them they're not particularly valuable i've seen them on ebay in the package for like 20 30 bucks so basically nobody wants these things it's only diehard mash fans that are interested yeah well i think but i do think you know as a made by a somebody that's a rack toy manufacturer for the most part 
from what I've seen of them, I have never seen them in the wild up close, but the pictures on your site and elsewhere, I do think they're pretty nice, although I do I do agree that uh, Hawkeye looks a little more like Klinger than, yeah. <laughs> than Alan Alda. He looks a little more Jamie Farr, but... <laughs> But yeah, they're you know it's 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 uh it's one of those unique little weird action figure things. And hey, like we said before, as as weird as it might seem that there were Mash action figures, a lot of kids watch Mash. You know, Mego tried to produce a Dallas line of action figures. So that's true. Uh, that's true. And they did produce a Love Boat line of action figures. My Love Boat, Dukes of Hazard, the Waltons. I mean, you know, TV was pretty popular back then. So yeah, this Mash was just never destined for to be a successful toy line, but I'm still glad these things exist just because I like the sheer weirdness of them. So uh, it, it wouldn't make for a good whole episode of Wonderful Toys, but I'm glad we got a chance to talk about it. Me too. And that was Those Wonderful Toys, item 32017, in which the ceremoniously playful Chris Franklin casts a spotlight on one toy from his collection, along with character, publishing, and media history. No... Wait, that was actually a sampler of the MASH cast in which Rob Kelly... Oh dear, another mashed up podcast product from the shipping... Uh, that is... Final product may differ from display. Final product may differ from display. In the earthen year numbered 1972... Earthen publisher DC Comics pioneered a new comic book format, the Tabloid-Sized Treasury Edition. Some of these epic oversized publications featured reprints of previously published stories, some featured new material, and some did both. And Treasury Cast, item 102472, and its host, the always-pervading Rob Kelly, aims to cover them all. And in this truncated audio sampler, Rob Kelly and a special guest decide to scale things down a bit. So, uh, Mike, I don't know if you feel the same way as I do, but like growing up, as much as I love the Treasury Comics, I loved almost just as much Treasury Comics ads. Any of the ads for Marvel or DC that had, you could buy this Treasury, those were so exciting. And one of my favorite ads is very unique is that it's a character-specific treasury ad. It's the super year is here, 1979, and it's all the different places where you can buy Superman comics. Yeah, I. this is one of those things I've learned to appreciate uh, and have nostalgia for in an era I didn't live through. <laughs> so I started collecting comics much later. But uh, one of the things about, you know, it's great that we have all these comics available digitally these days, but the thing that I'm, kind of miss out on that when you don't have the digital version is that you don't stumble across stuff like this and the the treasury ads not only were they usually pretty interesting to look at they always had an order form which i was just like wow i wonder if kids actually ruined their comics back then to order (laughs) as many of the treasuries as their parents would let them buy i have a number of comics with my with my name scrawled in them so yes the answer (laughs) to that is yes but yeah, this is a great, it's got his really nice drawing of, I believe, who would you say think that is? Is that Ross Andrew, would you say, Superman? Yeah, that's, that's the, definitely, the I'm, I'm looking at a bigger version of it uh, because I'm me and have this stuff on my computer. It's kind of a Ross Andrew, that face is a little not Andrew-y, but the body uh, is definitely, and I think Ross Andrew is one of those really underappreciated artists 
of this era, both oh, in yeah. terms of Man and Spider-Man. Oh, sure. Uh, so uh, if it is him, I'm not going to complain. Yeah, it's good stuff. It's him smashing through the super years here in 1979, and it, talks, it just basically is telling you all the different places you, you can get Superman. And, you know, modern audiences nowadays think, well, Batman is the main character of the DC Comics universe because he's got 77 titles. But, I mean, in, back in the, the 70s, Superman was still uh, the thing that kept the doors open. Uh, Batman got eight treasuries, but Superman got, like, 14. He was mm-hmm. still the guy. And so it mentions all of his titles, and you've got, it says, Super Solo Adventures. And plus, I love the, the S in Super is the little S shield. Nice detail. And the, back in the day when you actually had to paste that up. You know, yes. you had to cut it out with an exacto blade and paste it down. That was a pain in the butt. Um, but it's Super Solo Adventures, and it's got covers for Superman, Action Comics. And then at the bottom, you've got Super Team Spectaculars, and it shows you DC Comics Presents, Justice League of America, World's Finest, and Super Friends. But then you've got Super Specials, and it shows you the two treasures you could buy. Famous First Edition, Superman Number 1, and the Superman the Movie uh, special, which is not an adaptation, unfortunately, as Chris Franklin and I covered. But I mean, th- I I love this ad. First of all, I love shots of comic covers altogether. Comic covers just look great when you see them in kind of a small size. It just looks so exciting. But just if you are a Superman fan, look at all the stuff we're going to give you in 1979. It's really if again, if you're a fan, oh my god, save up my allowance. This is so much stuff. And there were two editions of that first edition superman number one one there was a uh, dc and a whitman there's the whitman reprint. right yep uh i think i have both of those actually because i again i'm me uh <laughs> but you know this was the time though of superman i mean this was if this is the super year is here this is january i mean this is literally less than a month after superman the movie right. came out right so and you know the superman the movie uh treasury special uh, which I also own, of course. Of course. Um, is there, I mean, it's just like, if you're going to pimp Superman, this is the time period to do it. And those are two amazing treasuries to do it with, because not, not only do you have Superman number one, which has four basic reprints, uh, though it's the first, uh, to me, the first director's cut of a comic book, because they <laughs> added stuff to the Superman story. But if you get that thing, look at the back cover. It is amazing. It is a shot of Superman uh, flying over the Fortress of Solitude, and it just it's just kind of this futuristic-looking thing that's just beautiful. And you guys talked about the Superman the movie one. I have never wanted to be part of a conversation more than you guys looking through that thing, because <laughs> uh, it's just so much fun. Uh, and, and, and I found out recently, I don't know if this is quite true, uh, but Chuck, Chuck Rosansky... Uh, you know, proprietor of Mile High Comics, and if you grew up in the 80s, you saw Mile High Comics. Oh, yeah. uh, Wrote a letter to Marvel Comics in the early 80s, back when the, what is that, the direct market was still the direct market, uh, and was basically saying, look, you've got this deal with this other guy, I don't think it's fair, here's what I can do. And he says, I sold 12,000 copies of the Superman special, the Superman special, he says, at a theater kiosk that he rented out when Superman the movie came out. Oh, my... Oh, wow. I've never heard of that. That's... Yeah, it's like... So, basically, he... I don't know if it's 12,000. I'd have to get the book out and and, and check that. It might have been, like, 1,500. But still, think about that for a second. (laughs) One, 
you walk out of Superman the movie, and there's the treasury size thing, just right there. So that's cool in and of itself. But two, it proves you're right, Rob. Well, it, I, it, I, it just, I like any story that that's the takeaway. Yeah. So thank you. But you you have been arguing for that for as long as I've heard you podcasting. Yes. That you need to have kiosks. But yeah, he apparently sold a boatload of these things just at little kiosks. Smart at a guy. There, yeah, there is no reason <laughs> other than just these companies don't get along that when you, with all the Marvel movies and all the DC movies that are out there that you cannot come out of the lobby after having just seen Avengers Infinity War and there is a giant Avengers treasury for $15 and you buy it right there at the movie theater and you give the movie theater a cut and then the you know the rest goes to the publisher you w- i really think like that guy you would sell a thousand of them instantly especially if the mm-hmm. movie was really good i i mean I, I that is such that i love that story i've never heard that that is fantastic <laughs> what a smart move for that guy to do cuz it's like yeah who doesn't who would who did not come out of Superman the movie wanting to read Superman comics? I mean yeah, that, that exactly. movie just makes you want to do it. So that's fant I love it. That's such an awesome story. And so yeah, I love that yeah, this is I mean, as good of a year of nineteen seventy nine seventy eight was for Superman, because it's his fortieth anniversary, Action Comics number five hundred had come out, this movie had come out. Yeah, they were like, well, no, we're gonna make seventy nine even better because again, all this great stuff. So yeah, I love this ad. They didn't really do character-centric treasury uh, treasury ads that much batman never really mm-hmm. had one the superman was really the only one that were they're like no he yeah this is we're going to show you all the titles that he's involved in and then the fact that they mentioned the treasuries is just so exciting to me so i just love this ad it's just it's just so much fun and that run of action that that the the cover i think that's 490 uh that run to 490 to 500 is actually an amazing run of action comics. There's a lot of really good stories in there. And then, of course, you have action comics number 500. Uh, I know you won't say it's the greatest work of literature uh, in society because <laughs> that's Justice League number 200. That's right, that's right. But action 500 has to be up there. Uh, in terms of just being one of the most amazing Superman comics of all time, so and that was just, supposed to be a treasury too. That's so disappointing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when I found that out, I, I wept <laughs> uh, openly because just seeing that artwork at that size and that scope of that story would have been amazing. Yeah, that's a beautiful book. So yeah, these Superman treasures, and these are basically some of the last treasuries DC would ever do. They would do it at a, they would do a, a Superman two adaptation not adaptation a superman 2 treasury edition and they would do a couple more but this was sort of it for the treasuries at, at a certain point because the digest would come in and sort of take over they would flip the flip the script into a different format but this was really a beautiful ad and i love that dc made the effort to do it it's just uh, i never tire of looking at these ads and this is one of their best so uh, i just love this thing me too want to hear audio commentary about an actual treasury sized comic book then be sure to purchase Treasury Cast for your Cluster Cast application for $99.99.99. Moving on. Did you know that the Earthen Hypernormals that thwarted the Dominion invasion, the Justice League, were so popular that mass crews of Earthen illustrators would create thousands of successive drawings depicting their adventures, and would display them in such rapid succession? that they would trigger a phi phenomenon within the earthen brains, making the earthers believe that the drawings were actually moving on their own. Here to celebrate this fiendishly clever deception referred to on Earth as cartoon animation, 
and exclusively available to you from the cluster is the JLU cast, item 12171. Hosted by Chris Franklin and his more intelligent and dominant mate, Cindy, this podcast is a thorough analysis of every episode of the Justice League and Justice League Unlimited animated series. And in this sampler, the two mates discuss a shorter piece of cartoon animation by one of the lead Justice League animators. Hello and welcome to a special mashup sampler segment of Batman Nightcast, co-hosted by myself, Chris Franklin, and... Ryan Daly. And J.O.U. Cast, also co-hosted by myself and someone I'm slightly more intimate with. I hope so. Good Lord. And who are you? <laughs> Cindy. <laughs> slightly more intimate. How dare you? <laughs> well, you and I haven't spooned like you and Shag, see? So oh. That- oh, gosh. <laughs> supposed to tell that oh they've told it everywhere okay uh, so it's heroes con one year ago yeah <laughs> you guys have a song we should play it here i don't know uh, <laughs> you're the one that drops the beats all the time you can you can put it in uh, uh now uh again this is a mashup of two shows so ryan can you tell the folks what nightcast is about what we normally cover on Nightcast, we explore and review the Batman family of comics set right after the Crisis on Infinite Earths event from DC Comics, uh, published in the mid-1980s. So, so far, we've been looking at issues of Batman and Detective Comics. We've covered Batman Year One. We are in the middle of covering issues of Batman Year Two. Uh, we're exploring the new revised origin of Jason Todd, the second Robin, uh, and the goal is to just continue through the series. Right now, we're kind of in a, a low-rent period of the Batman books, <laughs> uh, but there is light uh, just on the horizon that we, we should be getting to within a couple of episodes. So uh, it's there. there is hope hope soon. And that light is Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogle <laughs> and John Wagner. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, Cindy, uh, what do we discuss on JLUcast? Okay. So we have kind of morphed things around, and we are now doing the JLU cast, which is covering the animated um, Justice League series and Justice League Unlimited series. And, you know, we love all things Bruce Tim, and so that kind of plays into today's show as well. That's right, because today we're pooling our resources and talking about a Batman animated project from DC animated head honcho Bruce Tim, but it's not quite what you would expect, right, Cindy? Right. We are covering Batman's Strange Days, a 75th anniversary short originally aired on Cartoon Network on April 9th, 2014. The short was storyboarded, written, produced, and directed by Bruce Timm himself. It stars the voice talents of Tara Strong, Brian George, and, well, let's leave that last one for later. Music was by Christopher Drake. You want to give us a synopsis, Ryan? Sure. In the hills outside Gotham City, a hulking monster carries a beautiful damsel in distress to the lab of Professor Hugo Strange. Professor Strange wants to harvest the woman's blood for his mad genetic experiments. You know, classic Strange. But his plan is interrupted by the sound of the Batplane's engine carried on the wind. The Batman shoots tear gas pellets at Professor Strange and his monster. The gas forces Strange to retreat, and the damsel breaks away from her captor. 
Switching the Batplane to autopilot, Batman leaps down to fight the monster. Strange's creation is freaky powerful, but the Dark Knight uses the terrain to his advantage, sneaking through the fog and clubbing the monster with rocks and tree branches. He finally subdues the brute by slamming its head repeatedly into a rocky cliff face. Then, Batman confronts Professor Strange, who has recaptured the damsel and holds her at knife point. Strange swears that the Batman's terrifying silhouette doesn't scare him, but he nervously backs away until he loses his footing and falls into a ravine. At the last minute, Batman fires his grappling gun to catch the woman from meeting the same fate as the evil Professor. Safe at last, the woman asks Batman if the danger is over. He answers... For now. Very good. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, what did you guys think about this, Cindy? I, I really liked it. It was one of those cases that it it was classic, but it was noir, and it just, I, I really enjoyed it. I also enjoyed that the woman wasn't ah, ah, screaming, you know. She had <laughs> enough sense to run away when they had a chance, and I'm like, yay you. <laughs> you know, don't be a dumbass. So, <laughs> And I thought it was funny that when he's coming down in the plane, it's clearly labeled that he's putting tear gas on there. It's very clearly labeled because we don't want the kitties to think this is a real bullet. It's tear gas. Right. (laughs) Which as opposed to the original uh, Batman versus the Monster Men comic where he actually used machine guns on the bat plane on him. Right. What are are your initial thoughts, Rod? Uh, I am in love with this little short. Um, This two and a half minutes is as good as anything of the greatest Batman animated series episodes, which is a high bar to meet. Uh, And this thing is just so good. This is a a beautiful homage and distillation of the early years, the early adventures of Batman in Detective Comics, but also a love letter to kind of classic black and white serials. Um, like Cindy's right, it accidentally, it actually has that, that noir feel, which not just the color, but like the whole, the depth of shadows, the, the dark, like, I mean, you can see, it, it looks like there's a darkish tinge at the corners of the screen. Like it has that old film style and everything, but it's, it's beautiful from the woman in the, the, you know, the slinky, it looks like a white nightgown, like she was just taken out of her bed or out of her apartment to this monster thing that kind of looks like a, it's sort of Solomon Grundy esque with a big broad hat. Right. Um, and, and like just, you know, before, before we really got into Batman's rogues gallery with the, you know, insane gimmicky criminals of Arkham Asylum, you just had like this mad scientist doing tricks and it's a, it's a darker, more mysterioso Batman. And I've got to say, like, I didn't, I didn't know if it was possible, but the redesign of the character that Bruce Tim does for this short, it's a sleeker, it's a leaner Batman. I like it better than the classic Batman animated series, Batman, the <gasps> big broad chested one. I would love to see a series of Batman that looks like that, other than the gloves. I mean, he doesn't have the scallop like, cut right. on the gloves because he's got like the old fashioned gloves on this one. Um, but even like the, the kind of wider angular ears that go longer up and everything, I just, I look at this Batman, I was like, this, I'm like, Mwah, magnifique. <laughs> oh, it's it's so. kind of like Bruce Tim's take on Gotham by Gaslight. Mm, well, yeah, that, you know, that's, yeah, yeah. that was my take on it. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I, I, it definitely. I mean, I, I think you're right. I think it feels. I mean, it really feels like those early Bob Kane, Bill Finger, Gardner Fox, Batman comics pre Robin. Uh, 
it's it's got the it's got that pulp feel, you know, the mad scientist, the woman in danger. It's got it's got a Warner Brothers black and white crime movie feel, but it's also got a universal monster feel about it with the with the which of course was an influence uh on on the Batman comics uh of the time, so that that works out. And there's this there's the, the bit when the monster's like face comes through the uh, the the fog, the the tear gas smoke or whatever. That always kind of makes me think of that early early uh thomas edison frankenstein if you've ever seen stills of the monster from that he's got that kind of same expression on his face and i don't don't know if that was tim knowing tim that could have been intentional or it could just be me but it's got that he's 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 channeling a lot of like like really classic monster stuff in this and yeah the, the the batman design like you said i mean it's kind of similar to uh, his his head's a little similar to the Justice League version of Batman because he did give Batman kind of longer, more wider, spread out ears on uh, Justice League after kind of doing the same thing for Batman Beyond. But this is even more, you know, straight up Bob Kane uh, Batman. But yeah, I I would totally watch a series of this, a a movie, a direct to video movie. I mean, I would, I would totally be in for this. And for me, I remember when this thing aired, uh, the, the the kicker that got me was like, okay, who's playing Batman? Who's doing the voice? He didn't say anything through the whole thing to the last. The only time he said it was that last line you said, and you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting, and then Kevin Conroy, baby, and you're like, yeah. this is the greatest two minutes, three whatever of Batman ever, right here, <laughs> because. It's Kevin Conroy, you know, and so that like totally legitimized. It, it was great anyway. But if somebody else's voice had come out of it, it'd been like, oh, I wish it'd been Kevin Conroy. Mm-hmm. But it was for now, you know. It's like, yes, you know. <laughs> I mean, I remember me and Andrew were like, like jumping up and down, going, yeah, when they show when they aired yes, that. They were, they were, because <laughs> I didn't know. I mean, I knew this was coming out. I knew Bruce Tim had done it. But I didn't know. I hadn't heard if Kevin Conroy was involved, and of course Tara Strong was uh, Batgirl on the new Batman Adventures, and she's the voice of just about everything cool. Uh, she's <laughs> Raven on the Titans and Teen Titans Go, and does Powerpuff Girl. She does Harley Quinn now. So, um, but yeah, it's it's a great. It's it's just a great. It's it's just a great production, and it's like the perfect perfect homage to those earliest Batman comics. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that will pretty much do it for this special JL Nightcast sampler segment. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening, and be sure to check out Batman Nightcast and JLU Cast here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Bye. 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 Stay back, Batman, or she dies. You, you don't scare me. Stay back. Is it over? For now. Well, uh, <laughs> it appears there was a contaminate, uh, an added bonus that mingled into the JLU cast programming. A little taste of Batman Nightcast, item 71086. 
which chronicles the exploits of the Earthen hypernormal Caped Crusader that were printed in the post-crisis Batman and Detective Comics publications. You can enjoy both the JLU cast and Batman Nightcast, just not at the same time, each for the low, low price of just $99.99. As you know, the name of our Lord Manga Khan is well known on all inhabited worlds from the stellar expansion region to the Galactic Rim, and even in those hard-to-reach areas under the Rim. But did you know there is a place where everyone knows your name? Let us visit it now in this special sneak peek of a new podcast program from the Fire and Water Podcast Network and the Cluster. Afternoon, everybody. Ryan! How's that baby treating you, Mr. Daly? Like Thanos, snapping his fingers at my bank account. In that case, how about a beer on the house? Sure, gotta give my mouth something to do between podcasts. Say, Ryan, I don't get how you have so much time for podcasting. Doesn't your wife want you spending time with the baby? Would you? Truth is, I think she's a little worried about how much time I'm spending with the kid, ever since his first words were Dagobah system. (laughs) Now she wants me to go out and do something mature, something productive, and most of all, something lucrative that can support the family. So you're going to... Podcast about cheers, yeah. (laughs) That kid's not going to start college for 18 years. I got time. Cheerscast, the podcast where everybody knows your name. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Network. That was an exclusive sneak peek of Cheerscast, hosted by the once expectant and now neglectant father, Ryan Daly. It will be available to you exclusively from the cluster via your Clustercast application. For only $99.99.99. In fact, you can purchase all of the Fire and Water Podcast Network podcasts, including the Outrageous Aquaman and Firestorm podcast, the Circuit Chilling Macabre of Midnight the Podcasting Hour, the Insightful First Strike the Invasion podcast, the Pulse Pounding Superman Movie Minute, the Whimsical Plasticast, the Smoldering Ohatmu or Not podcast, the Scholastic Who's Who podcast, the Unpredictable Done in One Wonders podcast wonder show, the Riotous Pod Dylan, the Cinematic Film and Water podcast, the Sadistic Turn It Off with Tracy program, the Effervescent JLI Wahaha podcast, the Retrospective Mountain Comics, the epic Give Me Those Star Wars podcast. The dramatically comic Mashcast. The endearing Those Wonderful Toys podcast. The ambitious Treasury cast. The astonishing JLU cast. The moody Batman Nightcast. And even the upcoming podcasts like The Zero Hour Strikes, Cheerscast, and The Mirror Factory. All for just $99.99.99 a piece. Or you can abscond with the whole kit and caboodle and possess all of these shows for the outrageously insane package price of $99.99.99.99. Do not hesitate. 
Contact the cluster now. Amora's Tamaranian operators of both genders are standing by to take your orders. And may you revel in the delightful enjoyment from the hours and hours of podcast entertainment available to you from the cluster and... The FW Summer Sampler Super Spectacular! Reminder, Clustercast Intergalactronic and Clustercast Cubby data storage and replay charges always apply. Well, Elrond? Orders are going through our spherical roofs, your ingeniousness. I am sure the Tamaranian operators had nothing to do with it. I am sure. We had actually exceeded our piles projection and are well into the oodles category. Oodles of orders or oodles of moolah? Both. In fact, we had already settled the payment of the week's supply of Appalachian tortoise wax for the entire cluster ship. With a little extra for your body armor. Excellent. One should always maintain that showroom shine. How much of the revenue? Only 97%. But the 3% remaining still translates to millions of virtual bars of gold-pressed bitlatinum. And we gained 100% profit from all sales since the original content was... Stolen. That's right, Elrond. It was quite clever of me, was it not? To hire those galactic pirates of Xerox to steal a copy of all that earthen podcast programming for us to... No, sir. Our supply of pirated podcast content had been stolen. Pirated, if you will. You mean... Indeed, sir. According to the data signatures, the very pirates we picked to pilfer the podcast had purloined the pirated podcast we packed in the... Elrond, honestly. I could not resist the opportunity for alliteration, my lord. But the fact remains that the Xerox pirates... Had stolen all of the merchandise from under our noses? Which was quite an impressive feat, indeed given that neither you nor I have a single nose between us. Indeed, but why would they even dare to steal? I mean, you paid them handsomely. I thought you had paid them handsomely. Ah. I am certain that such a non-payment, even by mistake, would prevent our doing reasonable business with the Xeroxians again. They'll come around. That's what you had said regarding the incident with the Boomerangians. Noted. So... Options? We cannot give a full refund. Absolutely not! We are the cluster. We do not know the meaning of the word refund. And we had already spent 97% of our revenue on the Appalachian tortoise wax. Gotta maintain that showroom shine. Perhaps we can steal another copy of the- Such a venture would put us in the red. But the 3% does give us just enough funds to- Don't say it, Elrond. Establish a customer service center. No! Respect the nectar, connector, pecta, cluster, rector, neglecta, vivisector, projector. After effecta, circumspecta, disrespecta, interjecta, 
Disinfecta, Plecta, Perfecta, Electa, Trajecta, Fire and Water Podcast.com. Pecta, Collecta, Expecta, Contenta. Respect the Nectar, Connecta, Pecta, How undignified. Having to install an automated recording that instructs our interstellar purchasers to log on to that primitive earthen website, fireandwaterpodcast.com, to listen and download the podcast programming we had promised legitimately. Indeed. And what's more, they can download all of the Fire and Water Podcast Network podcasts from that electronic data space, regardless of whether they had purchased them from the cluster or not. What's worse... Do not tell me, Elron. I do not want to know. The consumers can access the data space without having to use our ClusterCast application, which means we cannot even hit them with our extortionate intergalactronic charges. I thought I had told you not to tell me! Was I not thinking out loud? Apparently not, Your Eminence. Oh, well. Is there any good news? We did at least break even, sir. And as a bonus, we had garnered over two trillion likes and shares on our interface log and emitter spaces. A paltry compensation for spending the last of our revenue, millions of bit latinum, to fund the development of a 27 bleen automated communication recording. Vocal talent rates had obviously skyrocketed since I had last contracted these myself. Uh, yes sir. Perhaps I'm in the wrong line of business. And speaking of lines of business... I understand that you had just opened your own franchise selling build-it-yourself storage cabinets, yes? Why, sir, you you noticed my humble little business venture? I'm very honored that you... Oh, come now, lackey. It seems that every household throughout the galaxy had received the Elrond Cupboard sales catalog. But what I do not understand is how you were able to build such an enterprise so quickly. Oh, well... I simply kept putting any extra pay credits away in the niblet jar over the last several cycles. You know, every little bit adds up over... Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there was no thievery involved. <sighs> you got me, your perceptiveness. I am not programmed to tell a lie. I had stolen... the business model from the Ikea Corporation of Earth. Aha! I knew you could not conceive of such a brilliant business scheme on your own. And stealing such a class act, right down to the pictographic instruction manuals that should be universally understood, and yet no creature understands. It's so brilliantly insidious. You will go far rising in the ranks of the cluster. But sir, am I not second in command? Why don't you simply deal me in, and I will make sure you stay where you are. Deal. Whew. 